Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Looks like we are live. Welcome to Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie, and I am your host and moderator for tonight's much-anticipated debate between T-Rock and Grayson from the Based Theory YouTube channel on the Age of the Earth. One could say this is the Great Age of the Earth debate, but specifically, we will be engaging the question Is there scientific evidence for a young earth? Definitely an exciting topic. I know many people's favorite uh, topic to engage, Grayson and T-Rock. They're definitely no strangers to debates. They're both uh, experienced. And before we get into uh, the debate itself, though, let's kind of break the ice, get to know our guests a little bit. Grayson from Based Theory, why don't we start with you? Good to have you back. How you been? And then a little bit about uh, a little bit about you and your channel. Hey everyone, Grayson here. I'm actually a little bit under the weather, so forgive me if I need to blow my nose or cough or something. I'll mute myself, um, but I'm doing well. Other than that, uh, looking forward to tonight's debate. It's a uh, a little bit of a strange topic here because I don't think either of us is necessarily going to be building an affirmative case. Uh, T-Rock is going to be bringing five lines of evidence um, that he thinks show that the Earth cannot be billions of years old. And I'm going to be trying my best to debunk them using evidence and science. So generally, I am an enthusiast for science. I I love most topics in science, from quantum physics to geology to evolution. And Yeah, I just started my channel towards the beginning of this year, Based Theory. If you search on YouTube for Based Theory, it should come up. I do debates on all of these topics, as well as live stream after shows and random videos about uh, just random subjects in history and science. So if you like any of that stuff, uh, definitely check it out. Grayson, appreciate that intro. I do have your channel linked in the description box. So to the audience, if you like what you're seeing from Grayson, definitely check out his channel. He does put on after shows to a lot of the creation evolution debates that we host. And so I always appreciate that as the debate continues into the night. T-Rock, you don't have a channel, but I do have a couple of your past debates with us linked in the description box for people to check out. So T-Rock, great to have you back. How you been and a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Donnie. I appreciate the opportunity again. Um, I'm T-Rock. I think uh, I've been here several times now, so I think most of the audience is somewhat familiar with me, but I'll give a quick recap. Um, I was born and raised in a Christian home. Um, We were definitely creationists. I couldn't argue whether we were quote unquote um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, deep time creationist or, or young earth, mainly because that was never really a, 
a focal point. It was never really discussed much. Um, we just believed the Bible. And, and so, um, you know, uh, people, people sometimes say, well, you were indoctrinated when you were, when you were young, but I was raised in public schools. I've only ever gone to public schools, um, in, including secular college level stuff. So, um, if I was indoctrinated at all, I was indoctrinated in public schools, um, because they pushed those types of messages pretty hard and we really never discussed them much. But um, <clears throat> over the years, I didn't give it much thought as a, as a young adult. Um, I just knew I was a creationist because that's what the Bible describes. Um, but over time, the, the subject would come up from time to time. I'm not very interested in science. So um, I started digging into what people cited as evidence and I found that it was extremely weak. Um, to the point now, now that I'm much more knowledgeable on, on a broad variety of, of subjects, um, I can positively identify that we were pretty much right from the beginning. We just didn't know why. Now we know why. <clears throat> so anyway, um, thank you, Donnie. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you to the audience for tuning in. Um, uh, per Grayson's comments, we're, we're going to go through five specific uh, subjects on uh, determining evidence for a young earth. And uh, we're going to start with, I'm, I'm going to say what they all are real quick. We're going to start with Earth's uh, magnetic field. And the other four in order will be um, erosion rates, lunar recession, carbon-14, and then dinosaur soft tissue. So some of them we might not spend a whole lot of time on. Some of them we might be a little more in-depth with this uh, happens to be one of Grayson's uh, favorite topics. So uh, we're going to start there and that's fine. Um, anyway, enough about me. I'm ready when you guys are. <clears throat> T-Rock, Grayson, thank you both for those introductions. Uh, you're both no stranger to this channel anyways. And so I'm looking forward to this. You're both excellent debaters. You're both well knowledgeable on this topic. So this will definitely be a debate to remember. Five specific subjects on determining evidence for a young earth. And so in a way, this is young earth creation on trial. And Grayson is going to be critiquing those five specific subjects. I know he's excited. I'm excited. We're all excited. So let's get right into it. T-Rock, I know uh, your first point, you are going to take about uh, 10 minutes. And so let's get started. Actually, before you do, let me remind the uh, the audience, this is going to be uh, very free flowing rather than a strict formal debate. So please, as the debate's taking place, tag me with your questions. Try your best to keep them on topic at Standing for Truth or at Donnie. And that way I won't miss them. Okay, so with that, T-Rock, whenever you're good to go, and if you need to share a screen, let me know, and I can get that up for you. I am sharing, and I've hit all the buttons. Here we go. <clears throat> Volume good? Sound good? Uh, for me, it's not yet showing up on the screen. It might be loading. Grayson, are you seeing anything in terms of slides? Nope. So it could be just a bit of a lag, T-Rock. It looked like your your Is camera there... started to lag as soon as you hit the share screen. Uh-oh. That's not good. Is my audio still okay? It's, it's breaking up. So your audio is quite laggy now, too. 
And so, um, you know, this like... happens almost every time, but I think there's a synchronization issue. Let me, let me log out and log back in. That almost always fixes it. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, rather than getting started with the lag, feel free to fix things up and then we'll, we'll get it started. So I'll remove that from the screen for now. From my understanding, he sounded a bit robotic there, but I think he said he's going to join or leave and then come back. So real quick for the audience, this has been another debate marathon week. And so this will be the, the last debate for the week, but we will be back here on Monday. So first thing next week, we've got several good debates. Monday, Paul Price, Mark. So we've had a lot of experienced debaters lately. So Monday, Paul Price and Mark Reed. Is there evidence for the existence of God? Looking forward to that one. The very next day, early debate. So Kent and Christian Dean, he's from Denmark. Looking forward to this one. And uh, this will be at four in the afternoon, though. So this one's going to be an earlier one, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. And then on Wednesday, uh, Modern Day Debate and I, so James and I, we've uh, coordinated and collaborated on a debate between uh, David McQueen and Conspiracy Cats. So there will be a debate on Wednesday, but it'll be over on Modern Day Debate, and I will be there moderating. Okay, so with that, it looks like T-Rock is back in the building. So good to good to have you. Hopefully that fixed things up, T-Rock, and we can we can try that again. How's my audio? Robotic there. It's interesting because I can see your slot, like I can see your lines of evidence listed in, in the bottom small box, your your screen share box, but up on the screen, nothing's showing up. So I think it is a bandwidth issue. T-Rock, as you are coming in smooth until you share screen. Is my audio okay now? It's not as good as it was before you screen shared. If it's a bandwidth issue, there might not be much we can do. We might have to verbalize the arguments because the lag is so bad on your NT rock that the screen is not even being shared. It's just a, it's just showing the template. Okay. Well, we'll give them one more time to in an attempt to fix that worst case scenario he's fine without the screen share we'll just have to get strictly um arguments without the visuals oh no my whole powerpoint that i prepared <laughs> oh well, we, you, with you you'll be able to do it don't worry <laughs> it'll just be uh t-rock unfortunately that'll be t-rock good to have you back okay so i guess audio is okay now your audio is good, okay. unless you unless I try to screen share. <laughs> unless you try and screen share. Mm. So I know the last few debates you've done here, there were no issues screen sharing, but yeah, if, and if tonight you're... nobody's here at my house, so nobody is consuming bandwidth but me. Are you connected to an Ethernet cable by by oh, yeah. any chance? Oh, oh yeah, you I'm are. Always, I'm always landline. Did you do a a speed test by any chance to see what your download speed was? No, I haven't. Typically, I mean, if it's over 20 to 30-ish, screen sharing shouldn't be a problem. I'm not sure. I'm not sure mine ever gets that high, to be honest with you. 
Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's fine. Let's uh, let's just get right into it. Maybe your bandwidth will improve as as we uh, advance in the yeah. debate, and therefore we'll be able to periodically try the. Did you see Sherry comment said that T Rock, if you share your slides with Donnie on Google Drive, then you should be able to share them. I don't. I think what you'd have to do is. I don't have a T Rock account. When you click present, rather than share screen, there's a section that says slides, and you click that, and it allows you to download the slides into there. But I'm not too sure. Well, and that's just it. I, I, I don't know exactly what they mean by slides. Um, I don't have any. Um, oh, you're and, using a you're using a document. I, I, I'll tell you what I can do, Donnie. I can send you an an email, let you share it. Um, that's a little bit. That's a little bit sketchy, just because I've actually built an Excel tool that you would have to know how to use. <laughs> it, it would be too difficult too, because I have I have to monitor the chat and save questions and. Okay. I don't think that'd be possible. No so let's get right into it rather than um, it just doesn't look like the screen share is going to work. So I'm going to start your timer, T-Rock. You've got 10 minutes for your first argument. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. Without the benefit of video, um, uh, and, and that's unfortunate because I had some things that I really want to share with the uh, audience. But okay, uh, we're talking about Earth's magnetic field. Um, and, and all I really did here was I've got some bullet points to kind of talk through so to initiate the conversation. But I also have some, some graphics that I created myself that um, I was going to share. So I don't have those. Um, oh, let me do this. Okay. In the 1970s, the creationist physicist, Professor Dr. Thomas Barnes, noted that uh, measure, measurements since 1835 have shown that the field is decaying at 5% per century. Also, archaeological measurements show that the field was 40% stronger in AD 1000 than it is today. Okay, Barnes, the author of a well-regarded electromagnetism textbook, proposed that the Earth's magnetic field was caused by a decaying electric current in the Earth's metallic core. The physicist Dr. Russell Humphreys believed that Dr. Barnes had the right idea, and he also accepted that the reversals were real. Um, I'm going to segue for just a second. There are some uh, creationists in the past that have denied um, reversals. I personally, I can take them or leave them, but the appearance to me is that they are quite real. Um, I, I don't need them for the for the sake of arguing a, a young earth, I'll put it that way. But nonetheless, they do appear to be quite real. Um, <clears throat> so he modified Barnes' model, Dr. Humphreys uh, modified Barnes' model to account for special effects of a liquid conductor like the molten metal of the Earth's outer core. If the liquid flowed upwards due to convection, hot fluid rises, cold fluid sinks. This could sometimes make the field reverse quickly. <clears throat> Now, as discussed in Creation Volume 19, Dr. John <clears throat> Baumgartner proposes that the plunging of tectonic plates was a cause of the Genesis flood. Dr. Humphrey says these plates would have sharply cooled the outer parts of the core, driving the convection. This means that most of the reversals occurred in the flood year every week or two. So that's pretty rapid for reversals. Okay, <clears throat> after the flood, there would be large fluctuations due to residual motion but the reversals and fluctuations could not halt the overall decay pattern. Rather, the total field energy would decay even faster. This model also explains why the sun reverses its magnetic field every 11 years. 
The sun is a gigantic ball of hot, energetically moving, electrically conducting gas. Contrary to the dynamo model, the overall field energy of the sun is decreasing. Dr. Humphreys also proposed a test for his model. Magnetic reversals should be found in rocks known to have cooled in days or weeks. For example, in a thin lava flow, the outside would cool first and Earth's magnetic uh, field in one direction and record Earth's magnetic field in one direction. The inside would cool later and record the field in another direction. So this was a, um, a particular prediction by uh, Dr. Russell Humphreys. Um, three years after this prediction, leading researcher Leading researchers Robert Coe and Michael Prevo found a thin lava layer that must have cooled within 15 days and had 90 degrees of reversal recorded continuously in it. And it was no fluke. Eight years later, they reported an even faster reversal. Currents in <clears throat> resistance inductance circuits always decay exponentially, not linearly, after the power sources switch off. For example, in a simple electric circuit with time T with initial current I, the resistance R and inductance L, the current is given by the equation little i equals big I times E raised to the quantity of minus small t divided by tau, where tau is the time constant L divided by R, the time for the current to decay to 1 over E, or about 37% of its initial value. The non-dipole intensities fall off with the increasing distance from the Earth's center much faster than the dipole intensity. So the non-dipole parts are not able to contribute nearly as much energy to the total as the dipole part. <clears throat> so let's see what else I got here. Okay, so Cohen <clears throat> Prevo carefully sampled a relatively thin 1.9 meter lava flow. It's approximately six foot. Um, design, <laughs> designated as flow number B51 at a point where their team's previous investigations had suggested a rapid transition, <clears throat> magnetic polarity change, was likely to have been recorded. This period of 15 days is undoubtedly an overestimate. Uh, let me back up a second. This is a direct quote from those two scientists, and this is a secular source, and they um, they are deep time advocates, not creationists. Um, so he says this period of 15 days is undoubtedly an overestimate. Nonetheless, even this conservative figure of 15 days corresponds to an astonishing, astonishingly rapid rate of variation of the geomagnetic field direction of three degrees per day. With due caution, <coughs> Coe and Prevo <coughs> thus felt prompted to search for alternative explanations. However, since other hypothesis requires special pleading, they decided that the most straightforward interpretation explains the data best. That is, the balance of evidence now in hand weighs in, again, this is a direct quote out of their, their paper, the balance of evidence now in favor weighs, now in hand weighs in favor of rapid geomagnetic field variation. We think that the most probable explanation of the anomalous remnants directions of flow B51 is the occurrence of a large and extremely rapid change in the <clears throat> geomagnetic field during cooling of the flow, and that this change most likely originated in the Earth's core. This interpretation must remain tentative until our investigation is completely finished, but if true, it has important 
implications for the reversal process and the state of the Earth's interior. So I'm going to stop there and let uh, Grayson take his time to um, offer his insight. Yeah, okay. That was... <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like I need you to maybe clarify a few things because I feel like you were kind of offering maybe some specific evidences and context, but I feel like the overall point might have been missed. Like, what is your reason for assuming that the decay rate of Earth's magnetic field strength is constant? I did not say it was constant. You said it was 5% per century. That's not a constant rate, technically. <clears throat> That's a that constant is, rate of 5% per century. Okay, but when you, and, and this is where not sharing my screen is a big disadvantage, but when you actually do the math, you uh -huh. can see numerically that it's not 100%, 95%, 80, or 90%, 85%, so on and uh -huh. so forth. That's not what 5% per century means mathematically. It's not, it doesn't translate to a quote unquote constant. So the, the five percent real... per century is a constant rate of five percent per century. It's not a linear rate, but it is a constant rate. Um, okay, fair enough. If you define constant, like that's fair enough. I, we don't have to really go back and forth about that point. So but the other way, the other way, why are you okay? The other way specifically to define that is um, a half-life of 1,400 years, approximately. It's, it's probably a little so, over that, So but. why do you think that the Earth's magnetic field decay <clears throat> has a half-life? Why so, would that be the case? Because in electrical circuits, there is a standard equation for um, describing either, and, and it actually applies to a number of electrical parameters, but um, voltage drop, for instance, in a battery uses this mm -hmm. same formula. Um, collapsing magnetic field uses it, and I believe other things like capacitance and probably some other electrical parameters also use it. In other words, the formula is very standard science. Why would that formula apply to the Earth's magnetic field? Because it's electromagnetism, and that's how the theory was developed to, to arrive at this equation. I, I, re I, I read off the equation earlier, and I'll, I'll do it one more time. It, it actually yeah. looks... I, I heard you the first time that you read off the equation. I just don't think that any geophysicist applies that equation in this case. And I'm curious about why you think that, that it is an appropriate equation to use in this case. Because that's how all electrical currents are described. Yeah, that, but that is oh, not no. the case here because, like, the actual thing that is powering the Earth's magnetic field is the cooling of the core. So energy is continuously um, given to the system, right? The, the, con the convection of the outer core is what causes the magnetic field. It's constantly generated. So energy is continuously supplied to it. So it doesn't make any sense for it to have a half-life. Um, actually, what you said is not technically true. Cooling is, does cooling play a role? Yes, but electromagnetic fields are generated by mechanical motion. So yeah. you need- And what causes that mechanical motion you is need the cooling the convection. You need the convection. You need the convection currents. Yes, well, which are powered by the cooling of the core, yes. Let's back up just a hair. That's, that's but, actually not no, the when only you thing said you that the hot, the, the hot fluid rises and the cool fluid falls. That's correct. It falls onto the inner core where it is reheated by the core. Thus, the inner core cools to heat the outer core to continually power the convection currents. And the convection currents are made of a fluid of molten iron and nickel, 
which conducts electricity. Thus, you have a movement of electric charges, which definitionally, by the laws of electromagnetism, will generate a magnetic field. This has been known since the 1800s. So I, I think we agree on the point that you have to have the mechanical motion. Mm -hmm. I think we don't agree on the, you're kind of painting this picture of somewhat of a, and I don't mean this literally, but, but you're approaching the idea of this um, perpetual motion machine where this cycle just keeps on repeating at more or less of a steady rate. Now here, here's how we know that that is not the case. There are um, about 200 years worth of data describing the decline in the field strength. 200 years worth of data. That's better data than we have yeah. for a lot of things. Yeah, we have a lot more than that. Yeah. We have so, an entire field of paleomagnetism. Yes. Um, but specifically on real-time measurements, paleomagnetism aside, real-time measurements of the field strength is not the same as what you do when you're looking at the seafloor and trying to decipher what happened in the past. These are two different things. We've got so about here's 200. one point I want to just bring up really quickly is that in any system that has a half life, right? You never see you you see only a decline, right? You don't ever see an increase. But when you measure Earth's magnetic field strength on small time frames, like in a week, you're going to see ups and downs and ups and downs. It is not the behavior of a system that has a half life. No system with a half life does this. Like whenever you have a radiometric decay. You, if you look very closely, you're not going to see ups. You're not going to say increases in isotopes and decreases. And in, it's only decreases. It's the same with an electric circuit. You're not going to see ups and downs. You're going to see a decrease. So this is not this system does not behave in a way that is modeled by a half-life. Um, OK, so let me just say it very straightforward. You are technically completely incorrect on this point. Now, how do you get ups and downs in the Earth's magnetic field? So there are ups and downs. There are spikes recorded. If you if you take a look at a graph of it, you'll you'll see these rather large anomalous spikes that you're referring to. That is true. Part of what you're seeing, though, is a um, spikes. So there's there is a what's called a dipole moment and non-dipole moments in the Earth's magnetic field. And so the, the dipole moment is what, how you think of a normal magnet north and south. And then the non-dipole moments, they're also referred to as multipole because they're more than two. Um, <clears throat> they could have, for example, four norths and four souths kind of thing and arranged in different uh, ang angular configurations. Um, but the spikes that you see are not in the energy of the field. They are in the field strength in terms of and I'm not sure where they use, they use Gauss or some other unit of measure for this. But anyway, um, there is, it's, it's referred to as field intensity, for example. But field intensity and field energy are two different things. So you can get spikes. And to put a finer point on it, the reason we know you're not historically correct either is because besides just having these like I said, semi-perpetual motion convection currents going up and down in the core, you also have literal, physical, mechanical motion to consider, i.e. tectonic plate movement. So I think everybody knows there is a, a tectonic plate that has looks like it has dived almost to a 90 degree angle down towards the core. That type of tectonic motion can drive the convection currents, which is what my presentation was actually describing 
can drive those currents and flip the field. And in doing so, it can also spike the field intensity. But as my presentation showed, let me read this one more time, real short. If I can find it real quick, give me just a second. But, but essentially what happens is um, reversing the field accelerates the decline of the field energy. It, it cannot maintain it perpetually. That's completely impossible. It's not even rational physics. All it does is boost the field strength for a little while, but the net energy is actually accelerated in its decay. Yeah, I mean, I never brought up any kind of field reversals. I was only talking, or like the total energy. I've only been referring this entire time to the field strength and why the field strength cannot be modeled by a half-life decay pattern. So these spikes totally rule out the modeling of that pattern. But overall, I'll just say uh, there's no reason to believe that the decline in field strength has been constant or has been exponential or ha follows a half-life. There's no reason at all to believe that that is the case. We have plenty of reason to believe otherwise. Um, the entire field of paleomagnetism completely demolishes this point. Like whenever we see uh, like rocks that contain magnetic properties, uh, whenever we see them harden, right, the magnetic aspects of them will align with Earth's magnetic field. And the percentage of, of how much it aligns can show us data about the field strength. So we can see whenever these magnetic rocks are formed, we can see what the field strength was when they were formed. And we have a, a whole lot of data about this that we show that the field was both stronger and weaker at various points in the, in the past. It's not like the graph is a straight line down or an exponential half-life curve. It is literally just a very chaotic pattern of ups and downs throughout the Earth's entire history. That's the, what the data shows. And one last thing, beyond the paleomagnetic data, we have other independent sources of data that validate this. For example, we can look at like beryllium isotopes that are formed in the atmosphere. And if you have a stronger magnetic field, more cosmic rays are going to be deflected and less beryllium isotopes are going to form in the atmosphere. And when we look at marine sediments and we look at the history of beryllium isotopes as you go down the layers, they match onto the paleomagnetic data very precisely. These are two completely independent methods that corroborate each other and show us that Earth's field strength goes up and down in the past. And, you know, I mean, I emailed several experts uh, in preparation for this, um, for these different points. And a geophysicist said that no one in the field would ever claim to be able to predict what Earth's magnetic field strength is going to look like in the future. It is a complex, chaotic system determined by the, the mechanics of how these convection uh fluids are, are moving in the outer core. And we don't have any good models to predict how it will be in the future, right? It's just, it's a complex, chaotic system. It's not predictable. No expert in the field will claim to be able to predict it like a half-life model, which would be highly predictable. Nobody is claiming this. Are you done? So, Again, you're technically completely incorrect. And having said that, I would not disagree with your geophysicist friend at all, because you're not describing what we're actually plotting on a graph. If you're 
plotting the energy of the field. It's an exponential decay per standard electromagnetic physics. It's, it's a very standard deal, but we're not projecting or predicting a, a perfect half-life decay curve like what you would associate with just doing basic model math. That is not what we're describing. That is not even what the graph looks like. Um, your, your idea of uh, spikes, again, you've got to delineate between field intensity and the energy that drives the field. Less energy in the field equates to less net energy or less net intensity in the field. They're, 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 um, they're completely bound to each other in that regard, but it's the energy that drives it. It's the amount of energy that tells you what that's supposed to be. So again, I would completely agree with your, ge with your um, geophysicist friend that you can't make any predictions in it. But again, go back to what I was saying about plate tectonics. In electromagnetic, in, in inducing electromagnetic fields, period, you need mechanical motion. Am I still coming in okay? And kind of plate, tect plate tectonics provides that motion. So what you would normally expect is on a calm millennium where there is no tectonic motion happening, you would expect a much smoother curve like what you were trying to describe. Hold but on a as second. Soon Hold on. Plate tectonics occurs on the... The, the lithosphere on the top of the mantle. They, well, we're yes. talking about the movements uh, that we're talking about are in the outer core. There's like hundreds of kilometers of difference between those two areas. They're like the, the plate tectonics is not really affecting the magnetic field very much. Um, today it's not, but it did in the past. And I don't think anybody disagrees that there is literally a plate that has taken a dive into the mantle. We're not talking about that the mantle. Dive, we're, we're talking about the core. And I'm telling you, it, it's deep and it goes all the way close to the core. The only part the solid core does for you is provide a thermal battery for you. That's all it hold really on, does. Hold on. Outer core, different than inner core. Inner core mm -hmm. is solid. Outer core is liquid, even though they have the same chemical composition. Say that again. The outer core is fluid. The inner core is solid. They're both the core. They're both iron and nickel, but they're not the mantle. Okay. So the That's... movement that generates Earth's magnetic field comes from the outer core and is powered by the cooling down of the inner core. That's not even relevant. You've got a That, that is plate. how the Earth's magnetic field is continuously <clears throat> You've generated. got a plate that has dived so deep. So whether you call it the mantle or the outer core, the liquid no, portion of the outer it's core. It's not going to the outer core. It has gone so deep that it is basically thrust um, thermal currents down and created a cooling effect. So two things have happened simultaneously. One of them is the thermal currents you were describing earlier, and the other one is literal mechanical motion. And yeah, so there are a number of things that can affect the convection currents. I mean, like literally this, a solar flare from the sun can change the actual movement of the convection currents because of this thing called magnetic induction, which is how all this works. A moving electric charge generates a magnetic field. Mm -hmm. if, you if you change that magnetic field or impact it, like with a solar flare, that's going to change the movement of the electric current flows in the core. So there's a, it's a feedback loop. It's a complex, chaotic system. It is 
not modeled by any kind of half-life behavior. It is not modeled by, I mean, it, it literally stresses the most complicated computer simulations we have at the moment to try to model these complex partial differential equations. I mean, it's, it's a very complex, chaotic system. So going back to your idea that it's not modeled by half-life equations, if you take that 5% per year that you call the constant, and I will, I will agree the rate itself is a constant rate, but the effect over time is an exponential curve because you can take the, you can do it either way mathematically. You can take the 1400 year half-life and you can plot over time what the field strength should be, or you can take the 5% idea and just do, and I've done these both on an Excel spreadsheet. Hopefully I, I'll get to share my screen again uh, before the night's over here, but I've already done this on the screen to show you. Mathematically, they're the same. 5% per year or call it 1400 year half-life. Mathematically, they are identical. They come up with the exact same values in the exact yeah. same places. Because <laughs> you calculated the 1400 year half-life using a 5% per century number. That's no. how it's calculated. Uh, no, no. You can, you can calculate, you can do the math completely independent of each other. You don't need 5% per year to deduce the other because you can also just use the um, standard physics equations for electromagnetic decay. Yeah, I, I don't think so. But I also largely beyond that, I don't see any reason to do any of these equations when they directly conflict with the evidence that we have available. Um, like, the evidence how, that we have available. Would we have the paleomagnetic evidence that clearly shows that the field was both stronger and weaker in the past. I mean, so yeah, let's let, let's talk about that evidence for a minute. Can you can you go ahead and take take your time and describe that for just a minute? I already did. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I mean. I'll be honest with you. I'm a very detailed kind of guy. I don't yeah. think you gave any real detail behind the idea that paleomagnetic currents tell us anything. Well, I didn't say paleomagnetic currents, did I? I said the actual Earth. like rocks that contain magnetic properties, like like ferrous rocks with iron in them, right? That's paleomagnetism. Yes, that's paleomagnetism. Exactly. That's what you're asking about, is it not? So when you examine these rocks, you can tell what strength of a magnetic field was affecting that rock at the time when it was formed. And I'm not making any assumptions about billions of years or whenever these rocks were formed. Nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay. All I'm saying is that when these rocks form, however, whenever they formed, you can tell how strong the magnetic field that was affecting them at the time of their formation was. Because you're either going to have a very large number of these iron atoms that are going to have their magnetic moments aligned with the field, or you're going to have a relatively small fraction of them aligned. And depending on the fraction, that's how strong the magnetic field was during the formation of the layer. So we can just look at the ferrous rocks that we have in the world, and we can look at what the field strength was when they were formed, and we can see... There's a huge variation. There's some that are higher than today. There are some that are lower than today. The magnetic field is literally all over the place in terms of field space. So ironically, the way you described it, I don't disagree with, but you're not really understanding what it is you're seeing or why it is you're seeing it. Yes, you can absolutely see spikes in the field intensity, which you're calling field strength. Field strength can highly vary based on the field energy so you can see spikes in the strength all over the world that's not 
being contested at all, but that's not, you're, you're not putting two and two together of how that comes about. That comes about through a, um, a rapid reversal is actually what is driving that. You need the reversals to cause that to happen. If there is no reversal, if this is more like the semi-perpetual motion machine you described with these uh, uh, convection currents just circling, cycling through at a very steady rate, you would not have the spikes that you're describing. They would be very steady. No, you would still have the spikes. No, you have to have the reversals. Like I've been saying multiple times, this is not some kind of perpetual motion steady state machine, right? This is a complex chaotic system that has multiple inputs and a feedback loops, okay? This is like, it, it can get totally, really crazy to calculate. If, if it was as simple as T-Rock was saying, we would be able to model this with computer simulations. But even our most advanced computers right now cannot model this behavior. Like, it, like it's a very crude modeling because it's so complicated. The partial differentiation, differential equations involved are too much for even most supercomputers. So don't buy what he's saying about this is a super simple situation it should be a super steady state there's no spikes and troughs absolutely not true i did not you're completely misrepresenting what i said completely misrepresenting and i don't think you at all understand the technical impl implications so you talked about uh solar flare for example being able to affect the field strength i guess is what you were saying yeah, I, I, I wouldn't even bother contesting that, but I would say that um, it would be super insignificant. And the variation you actually see in the spikes uh, in the field strength that you've described cannot be accounted for based on that type of input. Yeah, well, you say that, but the feedback between the magnetic field and the electrical moving electrical currents in the core is what is so complicated. These these feedbacks are so complex that you're just writing them off and saying they're insignificant when literally our most advanced supercomputers cannot model this behavior. I'm not disagreeing with that. That's okay. So you, it's you're, miss, you're That's missing the point. point that you're misrepresenting what I'm saying. And you don't, you obviously don't understand the technical okay, pause implications. For one second here. Do you agree that earth's magnetic field is generated by the movement of electrical currents in the core? Mm, technically no. Then what is it caused by? So backing up all the way to the origin of the Earth, something had to induce a, a relatively large field. Something had to induce that, and it had to be through mechanical motion. Well, it's still being induced today by the same process. It's continuously so, induced. <coughs> That's the, that is the principle of magnetic induction. So, so I'll, just, I'll just preempt this right here. If it's not magnetic induction, then there is no physics that could explain it because <clears throat> Earth's core is at a higher temperature than the Curie temperature, which mm -hmm. is the temperature at which a, a normal ferrous magnet, like a, a permanent magnet or any kind of magnetic field that's constructed by the alignment of magnetic moments of the atoms that make it up, that doesn't work at such a high temperature. So the only thing at that high temperature that could physically be generating a field like this is the movement of electric charges. Like it, it's got to be magnetic induction. There's no other physics that can do that can explain it. So let me let me clarify a good uh, a really important point there. When you, you I, I again, it, I'm not even disagreeing with some of the technical ideas that you're you're putting out there, um, but. 
and so too complex for a supercomputer. I'm, I'm not even contesting that. I'm not describing some sort of simplified version of it. What I'm saying is, is that over time, and we have 200 years worth of data to show this, plus two very, uh, we, we've got the data itself, plus the fundamental um, equations that you use for magnetic decline. But there's probably a really important physics point in here that you, I, I don't think you've necessarily keyed into. And that is that whenever you have a collapsing field, the collapse of the field itself induces an increase in, in, in basically when you it, it increases, it induces a voltage. So as that magnetic field is collapsing, it induces a voltage. The voltage in turn reinduces a collapse. So it's a cyclic thing. And that's yeah. what that is exactly what the equation that I was trying to, to describe earlier, that's exactly what it's describing is the cycle of collapsing, inducing a current, rebuilding the field, but less. And the reason is, is because whenever you, um, whenever you have current passing through like that, you hit resistance, you, you produce heat. So your energy is lost in the form yeah. of heat. So all <clears throat> these equations that you've been bringing up this whole time, none of them imply, like none of them uh, factor in what if energy is continuously being added to the system? That invalidates just, all of I just equations. told you. I just told you. No, no, no. You said that if the energy is constant, then the like I, you'll, that's you'll have it decline over time. I did not if say you're that. Adding energy to the system as is happening with the earth, like as the core cools, that is adding energy into the convection flows. Then none of these equations apply because energy is continuously being you're, added. <laughs> you're literally making up things I didn't say. All right. Well, I'll tell you, for those equations of electromagnetic decay, the assumption in order to be able to use these equations, what makes them applicable is that energy is not continuously being added to the system. It's electric. It's a field. It's a it's a decay in a closed system. No. That Sorry. is how those equations work. Yes. Where is the energy coming from? The energy is literally coming from the collapse. So it collapses and induces a current, which is the energy that drives the spike again. So it's a cycle. It is yeah. the same cycle yeah. you get in a battery, for so example. You're not adding any more energy than you had at the start. Correct. Yes, but yeah. that is not the case in Earth, the generation of Earth's magnetic field. That is not the case. You are continuously adding energy. No, you're yes. not. Yes, you are. You are changing heat energy the Earth's mechanical energy. Let's use a little bit of common sense here for a second. The yeah. Earth's core... The inner core, the outer core, the mantle, the entire thing yep. is cooling off over time. Yes. If exactly. it's cooling off over yes. time, exactly. any idea that you have of it kind of keeping this magnetic field in a semi-steady state over billions of years is completely gone because the cooler it gets, the less energy it can feed back. Bingo! You just <clears throat> nailed it. That's the whole thing. As it cools, it continually supplies more energy, and that but energy is lost. But yes, that that's the point. Is, yeah, exactly. Over time, like, guess what? Once the core cools completely, goodbye magnetic field. It's gone. Okay. Then like, that's over billions of years from the current rate. I mean, it hasn't cooled that much comparatively, but like, that's where the trajectory that the earth is going. Once the core cools, the magnetic field is disappeared. Okay. The energy from the cooling core has to continuously be added to the convection currents to power them to create the magnetic field. Like the magnetic field is created every second. It's induced. 
it's again you need the um <clears throat> excuse me you need the um you actually do have to have the reversals to explain the spikes that you see there i haven't brought up any reversals you don't need them I, um yeah you actually do. there is a core there is an effect like once you have a magnetic field reversal you do have a decline um and then you have an increase and it then it goes back to a normal fluctuation pattern but it, there's always that fluctuation pattern um i actually let me see donnie can i share my screen actually um let me see Definitely, yep. right um let me think here we go okay so can you see that so I actually found this study from the Advanced Earth and, S and Space Science Institute. So they actually had an animation of the last uh, like field reversal. And then they have right here, this is measuring the intensity of Earth's magnetic field. Can you guys see this? Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is measuring the intensity. And I'll just let this play. So you see like the thousands of years up there on the screen. So this is 43,000 years ago. You can see this is based on actual data that is being empirically measured. You can see the intensity of the field changing there's the reversal right there you see it drops way way down and then what happens oh wow it it spends a couple thousand years down and then it starts going back up to where we saw the normal levels before but right before a field reversal you start to see all kinds of funky behaviors with the field intensity um, and with excursions and everything like that so i mean currently scientists predict that we're actually on track uh here we can stop sharing now they actually predict that we're on track for another field reversal in the next two to 3,000 years based on the kind of activity that we're seeing with our the Earth's field uh, intensity now. In how many years? Two to 3,000. Two to 3,000. Okay. That's interesting because you just said earlier that you cannot make any predictions about the... Field intensity, uh, yes. Yeah. They're not making predictions about field intensity. So, <clears throat> There's a so now we, but now we can predict 3,000 years into the future. Yeah, it's a war large margin of error, two to three thousand years, and it's you know, I mean, this is not a precise okay. prediction at all. That they're just saying that in paleomagnetic records, we can see that when you have a declining field strength like this that we see today, um, and like T Rock is correct is somewhat in saying that it's five percent in the last one hundred years. Um, two hundred. One hundred years, and the five percent in the last one hundred years is what is commonly, that's the consensus among geophysicists. Um, there's a huge amount of doubt in the measurements in the 1800s. I mean, I think most people can understand why. I mean, technology was a lot more primitive in the 1800s to measure these things with any kind of precision. But in the last 100 years, uh, they're precise enough so that we can say confidently that it has declined 5% in the last 100 years. But it, when we look at the paleomagnetic record, we can see that during the times where we see declining field strength like this, um, we actually see more excursions and reversals happen then. So it's looking like we are due for a reversal sometime in the next few thousand years. Okay, so let me uh, let me make one very short point about your graphic that you showed a while ago. That was very cool, by the way. Um, the data for the field strength behind that graphic, nobody's contesting. It's the number of years that you have at the top of the graphic that is being contested. How long did it take for those uh, spikes to go up and down, right? Okay, so having said that, Dr. Russell Humphreys took exactly that type of data 
and looked at it and looked at exactly the standard equations that you use for electromagnetic decay. And he put two and two together and he made a field testable prediction that you can do inside of a human lifetime. You don't got to wait 3000 years. His prediction was that there must have been very rapid reversals. It's the only way to explain it. He predicted that three years before the field study was done by a secular um, a geomagnetic team went out and, and all they did was took these, what I described earlier, about a six foot section of rock <clears throat> will cure, will cool below the curry point within about two weeks or less. And per the, per the comments that those guys made, uh, two weeks was actually very generous. It was probably uh, more on the order of 10 or 11 days, probably. Anyway, the point is, is that they cool fast enough that you should be able to measure reversals inside the period of the cooling of that layer. The outer portions, the outer part of those layers, the, the outer crust, I'll call it, cools first and then the cooling continues to the inside. What that implies is, is that you should see a particular field strength and a polarity direction in the outer portions. And as it's cooling, you start capturing the change in angle and the, um, the field intensity both change as you go towards the center. In a two week span, they got something like, um, Okay, he says, found a thin layer cooled within 15 days, had 90 degrees of reversal recorded continuously. 90 degrees from the outer to the inner. That is a young earth type uh, prediction because you have to have rapid reversals. Reversals are not slow, gradual processes. They're okay. fast because it literally takes mechanical motion to do the reversal. Okay, well, I haven't. I'm not familiar with the exact experiment that you're laying out, but I see, you know, I, I see no reason why that wouldn't happen in either model. I mean, a rapid reversal, is, you know, <laughs> north to south pole switches that can happen in a few weeks. I don't really see what the big deal is. It's the number of reversals that we're talking about here. Like in in one case, these reversals happened every few ten thousand tens of thousands of years. In the other case, you got like. 90 reversals in the span of a week or something like that you i mean you, there's 300 and something odd reversals in the past million years or so so if, if you condense that all to the week of the flood i mean every couple hours you're getting the north and the south pole flipping if you're okay with that in your model that's whatever but the main point i wanted to make with this sub subject before we move on is just that there there is no reason to assume that the Earth's magnetic field would continue to get stronger and stronger in the past, right? The data that we have in paleomagnetic record, as well as other independent corroborating lines of evidence, like with the beryllium atoms in the atmosphere, shows us that Earth's magnetic fields goes up and down in the past in a very chaotic fashion. It's not a nice, neat, periodic kind of up and down. It's not a just a steady decline or incline. It's like very chaotic, very difficult to model but it is absolutely not a disproof of an old earth. So, okay, gentlemen, we're going to have to move on to subject number two, because <laughs> we okay. just talked about that for about 40 minutes. Okay. And so uh, T-Rock, 
you basically started the argument. So I think to be fair, we'll give grace in the last word, but I will make sure we get three minute concluding statements. So once we reach the end, we'll allow both debaters to wrap up their thoughts and points. So T-Rock, if there is something you'd like to respond to based on what Grayson just said, maybe note it and save it for there. Okay. okay. Subject number two, T-Rock. Subject floor is number yours. two, erosion rates. Donnie, I can't help it. Do you mind if I try and share my screen one more time? Sure. Why don't we do this for just the screen share time? Why don't you turn off your camera, save some bandwidth, then okay. share screen and let's see if that if that works. Okay, camera's off. Uh, it doesn't look like the turning off of the webcam has helped at all because it's now back into lagging stage so t-rock if you wanted to refresh everything leave and come back we'll just keep doing what we're doing we'll, we'll just keep it audio based i i stopped the sharing so i guess the audio is still okay yes but i can see your screen in the bottom right hand corner and it's just in a constant load phase. Which the, screen? Uh, you mean my, my share screen? Okay, no, it looks like it's gone now. Yeah, so. I've, I've already stopped sharing. It's just that my Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, <clears throat> yeah, never mind. We, we'll, we will be talking about erosion rates. Um, okay. So. <clears throat> Okay, so scientists have estimated, uh, let me back up just there. <clears throat> when you're talking about erosion rates, there's a couple different ways to look at erosion. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll use the term types. A couple different types of erosion, the way I think about them. There's what I'll call vertical erosion and there's horizontal erosion. <coughs> Excuse me. World. Horizontal erosion would be basically how a flat surface gets lower and lower or eroded down and not, not trying to describe a planar surface remaining planar as it's going down, but <clears throat> basically it's the, the average height of the continent reducing over time. So that's horizontal, what I call horizontal erosion. Vertical erosion is more like coastlines where you're eroding inward like this from the ocean into the continent. So two different types. <clears throat> Scientists have estimated that some 20 billion tons of sediment are disappearing each year. One um, eventually, <clears throat> excuse me, the fine material builds up as soft layers of mud on the hard black volcanic seafloor. Surveys indicate that the average depth of all the sediment on the ocean floor is less than 400 meters. <clears throat> some large areas of the ocean floor have hardly any mud at all. Some rivers are excavating their basins by more than a thousand meters, which or a thousand millimeters, sorry, which one meter equates to about 39 inches of height in a thousand years, while others move only about one millimeter or 0.04 inches in a thousand years. <clears throat> so the erosion rates vary widely. 
the average height reduction for all the continents of the world is about 60 millimeters or 2.4 inches per thousand years. That sounds kind of slow, but when we do the math, that's not going to be the case, uh, which equates to some 24 billion tons of sediment per year. So <clears throat> a height of 150 kilometers or 93 miles of continent would have eroded in 2.5 billion years. The problem has been highlighted by a number of geologists who calculated the North, uh, that North America should have been leveled in 10 million years if erosion has continued at the average rate. The Yellow River in China could flatten a plateau as high as uh, Mount Everest in 10 million years. <clears throat> Okay, so <clears throat> there is a, um, th that's just a general overview of, of what's happening in, uh, with erosion over time, but um, you know what, hold on just a second. Never mind, I'm good. I already Perfect. have a lot to say, so. Okay, I mean, if, if you need me to stop at any point, go ahead and tell me and I'll, I'll wait. No, it's okay, you can finish. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> the uniformitarian story is formerly stated on a road sign. I'm going to talk about Devil's Tower for a minute. Um, it's it's generally considered to be a, a conduit of an eroded volcano. Um, more okay, than 300 awesome. meters. I've been there. Have you? Very nice. Um, more than 300 meters of high plain sedimentary rock was eroded um, with the tower hardly touched. The uniformitarian story is formerly stated on a road sign north of the tower is that erosion of the high plain sedimentary rocks took more than 40 million years. The sign has been replaced and it now says it took only one to two million years. However, the erosion of such a vertical tower should be rapid and complete well within 100,000 years. The measurement of river sediment outputs <clears throat> into the ocean indicates that all of North America would have been eroded flat sea level in just 10 million years. However, this does ignore a range of geotectonic factors. Regardless, a maximum erosion time to level North America is probably no more than 40 to 50 million years. The survival of Devil's Tower is especially puzzling because vertical rock faces, this is really key, are more erosive being affected by gravity and rock slides and falls. Furthermore, <clears throat> the extensive vertical cracks of the tower would be prone to destruction by freeze-thaw weathering. Freeze-thaw weathering is extremely destructive. <clears throat> While living near the base of the tower, this is a quote from a, 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 kind of a, an observer um, that lived in the area. Uh, they say, while living near the base of the tower in November 1954, during periods of frost action at nights, one could hear blocks crash onto the talus. <clears throat> Devil's Tower should have been quickly destroyed, surely in less than 100,000 years. But most perplexing to uniform geologists is that the tower appears to be close to the same size today as it was when it first when it was first exposed. Furthermore, the amount of talus around Devil's Tower is modest, reinforcing the deduction that erosion was both fast and recent. Yeah, I gotta say, I've been to Devil's Tower, and like, you can see a lot of the remnants of the tower, like around the area, like from it exactly what you're talking about with freeze drying and peeling off layers of the of the mm -hmm. tower. It was once much wider in the past than it was now. You can see the, the material that has eroded off from it surrounding <coughs> the area, um, and also it's igneous rock, so it, it's it doesn't uh, erode as fast as the sedimentary rock around it. 
Um, I, I guess, you know, conceptually, I don't totally disagree with most of what you said there, but, but I will note that uh, per the previous comments that the geologist was making is that um, if you look at that base, it's not that much bigger than the main um, column of the tower, not 40 million years worth and not even 2 million years worth. It's, it's, there's just not enough erosion there. Large blocks crashing into the talus during a single um, uh, winter, that's pretty significant. Um, is it as, I, I mean, I wouldn't even argue the point. It's slower than other types of rocks, okay, but it's still quite fast. And uh, if you have large blocks falling off of it, the freeze thaw cycles apparently are taking their toll on it at a very fast pace. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> I'm going to switch gears a little bit, though. There's another really good example. Um, there's a couple named Mark and Louise Roberts. They bought the historic Bell II, and I think I'm pronouncing that for, correctly for French. It's French pronunciation. But anyway, <clears throat> it's the lighthouse at Beachy Head, United Kingdom in 1996, located near spectacular 300-foot um, high chalk cliffs. They turned it into a bed and breakfast, Okay. Late in 1998, two years later, their dream turned into a nightmare when a large piece of the cliff fell into the English Channel. Four months later, engineers saved the structure by moving it 17 meters or about 55 feet inland. Um, <clears throat> but they warned it may only be a matter of decades before it needs to be moved again. In 1832, Bell II was built about 30 meters or 100 feet from the edge. So think about that. It was it was built 100 feet from the edge. The engineers moved it 55 more feet, um, just a little over half that distance. <clears throat> On average, the sea has eroded one meter of the cliff every six years. In fact, erosion keeps the cliffs white by preventing grass, shrubs, and trees from growing. If the cliffs have been eroding at one meter every six years since the end of the Cretaceous, more than 10,000 kilometers of coastline would have eroded away. That's the like that's like the distance from London to Cape Town or nearly from Los Angeles to Sydney, Australia. <clears throat> um, and uh, are we almost uh, done with the erosion intro? Almost. There's just a few more little things here. A um, million years at this rate would see 1500 kilometers eroded more than the entire width of England and Ireland. Uh, let me see if I got one more quick uh, thing to do here. See how relevant it is. No, yeah, that, that's it. I mean, we can stop there. Um, oh, there was one other quote. I'm not sure where it went. That was well, I'll just say, like, with, the, with the cliff, I mean, I, I don't see any reason to assume why it would all be the same material. Like you're just saying, oh, it would have to be 1500 miles or whatever. Why would it all be the same kind of material? Different materials have different erosion rates. But um, just broadly speaking, um, there's two things that address this, right? Um, plate tectonics and something called isostatic compensation. So I didn't actually know what that second one was until I emailed, um, I emailed several geologists. I just kind of Googled world's erosion experts. And then I just saw who was publishing what papers. I sent a bunch of emails and I got a bunch of responses. And a number of them brought up something called isostatic compensation, which I thought was really interesting. So mm -hmm. whenever you have, th this would correspond to, I think you called um, horizontal erosion or no vertical erosion where they're getting smaller over time, uh -huh. right? Um, so this was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, the 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 tectonic plates that like the continent oceanic plates, 
are all floating on top of the mantle, essentially. And whenever they, the continents are eroded and the erosion, like the sediments go into the oceans, the entire plate is actually getting less heavy. It's getting less massive because it's losing material. And to compensate for that, it starts floating higher on the mantle. So it's like it's a it's a precise balancing effect. Like like you can calculate it. Like you can, you lose X amount of kilograms due to erosion. You raise up X amount of meters. And so there's a complete balancing effect called isostatic compensation. And then in terms of where new material comes from, that's from plate tectonics. So you anything you want to respond to with that, or do you want me to explain? Um, yeah, your idea of isostatic compensation. I mean, I totally understand the concept. Basically, it's like bailing water out of your boat mm -hmm. um, yeah. or or getting the heaviest person out of your boat, and then it's, yeah. it, it comes up higher. Yeah. Um, and and, I, and I, I didn't even know about that until I emailed a few geologists these questions. And basically, the answers that I was continuously hearing were mostly plate tectonics saying, mm -hmm. you know, new crust is generated at boundaries of plate tectonics. So I, someone gave an example of the Andes um, and they've measured the rates of uh, the destruction of crust versus the generation of new crust. And they found that it's maintained in a balance. Um, so you get a, a roughly steady state of new crust being created, old crust being destroyed um, due to subduction and things. And then erosion, like it's, it, the, there's a perfect analogy with the, with the bailing out of canoe. As, you, as the continents lose mass due to erosion, they float higher and more of them becomes exposed. So there's, a, there's this like, you know, nature loves equilibrium. It's kept in balance through those two mechanisms mainly. So conceptually, I mean, I can't disagree with the isostatic compensation idea, but you've got a serious flaw with it, a couple of them. What you're compensating for is you're, you're raising the continent up. That's one thing. But you've lost all this mass that is in the ocean floor. Yep. In order for isostatic compensation to actually solve the problem, what you would have to do is get those erosional remnants that are in the ocean floor back up underneath the continents. Not for the sake of raising the height, but for the sake of perpetuating an amount of mass that would keep it above sea level indefinitely. Well, subduction would be the main mechanism because oceanic crusts are uh, more dense than continental crusts. Mm -hmm. So whenever they meet, the, they're subducted below the surface and essentially mm -hmm. destroyed. So that, that's where the extra material is going. And then one more point that I'll just make um, that I think the most current estimates are that only about 7% of the current continental crust is older than 2.5 billion years. So we do actually see the majority, like, you know, 93% of all the continental crust or, you know, somewhere around that, the large majority of the continental crust that was really ancient has been destroyed. It has been lost due to these processes like subduction. But new crust is continuously generated and that's what compensates for that effect. Um, it actually it does it cannot compensate the way you're describing the earth being a big round ball um, you, you've got this gravitational effect that's relatively uniform around the planet having said that it's still conceptually no different than if you take a flat pan and pile a bunch of dirt in it 
and just set it outside and leave it over time, that sand is going to all sift down lower and lower and lower. Um, that's that's inescapable, whether it's the size of the earth or not. So everything that's getting washed into the ocean, even though you get a certain amount of isostatic comp compensation for the, the vertical height, not the mass of the continent, the mass of the continent has to reduce in order for you to get that compensation in height. You've already said that, right? <clears throat> so you cannot put the mass back. Otherwise, you lose it again. <clears throat> And so let me, let me, uh, and, and this is kind of related to the idea behind Devil's Tower and the other just one. Really quick, the, the key thing is, is the density, not the mass, right? What's causing it to float higher is that it's less dense than it was before because it's the same mm -hmm. surface area, but you've lost the material. So if you've added surface area as well as mass, you haven't changed the density. So for example, when two continental plates collide, see the big difference in your illustration was that uh, if you're just putting a bunch of sand on a ball, there's no plate tectonic activity with plate tectonics, right? You see things like, you know, the formation of the Himalayan mountains, when the Indian subcontinent collided with the Asian plate, then you, when two plates collide, they, they push up and form mountains. So like tectonic activity does completely explain this little problem with erosion rates um no tectonics cannot remotely explain it because if you have actual subduction subduction means something's going down and something's inadvertently or um, um inescapably going up in, in the process but that's the, that is the problem with your your idea I, i'm well aware that my example doesn't have plate tectonics in there but when you in, introduce plate tectonics something has to go down and something goes up so the net effect is not that you end up with more mass above sea level. The, the net effect is that you're driving the sea level down as well. You're driving the sea floor down in part and raising the sea level. So, and, and there's another really important part in that too. Um, I, I don't want to miss this other point, uh, uh, but, but I'm, since we're talking this way, I might as well go ahead and, and say this. Um, your model completely ignores common sense collision physics. So when you have two elastic bodies that collide into each other, there is a necessary exponential de decline in acceleration. So when you look at, you cited the Andes Mountains as an example, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the Andes or Mount Everest or whatever. When you see the annual measurements of the height and you see them raise a few centimeters per year, what you're actually seeing is the tail end of an exponential decline in um, <clears throat> in deceleration over time. In other words, <clears throat> you can't take that two centimeters a year or whatever it is and extrapolate it back as, a, as an average constant rate because the collision is, by definition, uh, deceleration and it's exponential. Well, I never tried to do that, so I don't know why you're bringing it up. But also, <laughs> I would say that these bodies are not... Um, you know, again, you seem to be omitting the fact that energy is being added to the system. Like the forces that are propelling the movement of tectonic plates do not just go away whenever the, the plates collide. They're still being continuously pushed together. That's why like the, 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 the forces that are causing their movement are still active on them even after they've collided. So that's, that's why it. they continue to push together and like they they would probably be because of that but they, like they're still forced together it's not like these are just like 
two cars that are driving. Like the engines are still on. They're still, you know, going at it. So what's the, the main thing? Tell, is tell me what the engine running. is. Huh? Tell me what that engine is. What's the engine that's driving them that you said is still running? The thing that powers all tectonic activity. What, what, what is that? The energy in the mantle. So the... Uh, what? what? Yeah, the main point I wanted to get across is that plate tectonics explain where new crust comes from. And the new crust is what counterbalances the material that's been lost to erosion. So your idea of this continually running engine is no, it's no. The, the, you, I don't know where you get this imaginary energy from the core driving horizontal motion to create vertical uplift. There are literally, have you ever taken a, a physics course, a college yes. level physics course? Yes. Did you ever have to draw free body diagrams? No. Well, I would encourage you to take a college level physics course where you're drawing free body diagrams. The amount of force that you need in this direction to create a 90 degree vertical is huge. You don't get that from some thermal idea about what the core of the earth is putting out, giving to the, the, the continents. The reason I brought that whole thing up about the, the uh, exponential decline and deceleration is because when you draw your free body diagrams, you find out that the amount of force is ridiculous in this direction to get just a little bit of motion in that direction. And the Earth's core is so not doing that. Is your theory then that geologists are just not aware of free body diagrams and physics? That you think that they, this thought just hasn't occurred to them or what? Um, no, I, my, my theory... Let me explain my mechanism behind what you see today. Ignore what I think other scientists. Well, I'm not asking for your it. entire worldview about explanation. I'm just. I, I'm not. I'm not. No, I'll. I'll, I'll just. It's very quick, and and, and I'll, I'll explain. It's it's super simple. This horizontal movement that we got was probably from something like sea, uh, like a very sudden seafloor collapse, and it drove continents to move this way. Now, I, I sit and did the physics on this, or did the I did the energy calculations. All you have to do is approximate a mountain range, for example, as a triangle. And so a triangle, it's, it's a centroid, it's, it's a mass centroid, is one third um, of the height of the of the triangle, right? So all you have to do is, is just uh, approximate the mountain range as a triangle, and then um, use the potential energy equation and compare it to the kinetic energy equation of the motion of the continent. <clears throat> and, and I did this on my own, and I came up, interestingly, with almost the exact same numbers that people like Michael Lord and, and John Baumgartner and some others uh, did, and that is you need the continents to be moving at about two meters per second. And, and to put that into perspective, that's about like a medium to brisk walk. Yeah, but so. again, you're, you're completely ignoring the things that are powering the movement of the continents, which don't, don't just go away. These are not free bodies. Like they are being like given, they're being supplied with energy, with like things like sea, sea floor spreading. Like they're, they're, they're being driven forward. Like they're not just going off of their own kinetic energy. Like there, there's more energy to account for in your equations than just purely the kinetic energy of the of the plates. But uh, like largely, I just want to say, like, do you think that geophysicists and geologists have not 
this has not occurred to them? Like, you think that they just haven't done the equations or do you think that this is a conspiracy and they're covering up these equations? Like, like what, what do you think? Like, why hasn't this occurred to the field of geology? Like if, if what you're saying is true. Um, I, I hate to say it this way. First of all, no conspiracy, not remotely trying to touch the idea of a conspiracy. I don't think there's any conspiracy like that in, in, in that sense. Zero. But that's not what I'm saying. You're saying, why hasn't it occurred to geophysicists? Here's, here's the big, here's the huge difference in this debate. There is real-time physics, and then there's the storytelling of evolution. When you're over here in the storytelling of evolution, the explanations are not generated by real-time physics. If you go read the actual scientific literature that does not address evolution and origins, deep time and all that kind of stuff, if it's not addressing that, they're going to say pretty much the same things I'm telling you today. So, I mean, we can observe mountain ranges forming and being pushed up higher today due to plate tectonic collisions. So, I mean, we can observe this. The Himalayas are getting taller. At, at, again, an exponential, what you're, what you're seeing is a decline. And what I'm predicting, what I'm predicting, I'll be very specific about this, but I'll be honest with you, you can't really, you, you won't live long enough to actually see this happen, just like your 3,000 year prediction. What I'm telling you is if that rate of growth is two centimeters a year, two things are, are immediate, immediately obvious to me. Um, number one, you're only talking about the, the mountain range, not the entire continent. And number two is over time that two centimeters is going to become 1.9, 1.8, 1.7. It is decelerating because of the friction forces and the, the direct um, um, impact um, that, that you're experiencing. You're, you're not shoving a watermelon through a brick wall. It has to decelerate over time. There is not enough energy in C4 spreading or the core thermal uh, convection currents from the core to account for any of that. Okay, well, I don't know if you've done the math on that. I think you haven't, but this is my problem with a lot of your mathematical equations that you've used tonight is that I think that you're not accounting for all the variables that are relevant. I think you're simplifying things too much to use mathematics that you're familiar with, like kinetic energy and triangles. But I think that if you were to try and use, like familiarize yourself with the literature of plate tectonics, see what math is actually being used to describe this stuff, I think maybe you would see that it's a bit more sophisticated. But largely, that's just what I wanted to communicate is that plate tectonics, uh, create new material, new crust that compensates for erosion effects. And that's the main point that I wanted to get across. Okay. So one more, one more thing I'll say real quick and we can move on to the next one. Um, have you ever taken a course in mathematical modeling? In mathematic, mathematical modeling specifically? No, I've taken up to differential equations. Okay. In mathematical modeling, there are two basic approaches. You can take the complex approach that you're describing. If you know the inputs, you have to know the inputs to be able to do that. But you can you can take the more complex version where you've got all these different parameters that you've got to plug in and you can do your model that way. The other way to do it is to simplify the model and simply widen the parameters to be able to account for all those other things you described that you said I'm not accounting for. I know how to account for them. 
And a real good example is where Dr. Robert Carter did this phenomenal job of modeling population growth among people and animals. I think people was his specific topic and that's what mine was. Um, he, he did exactly what you're describing. He, he put in all types of parameters that had to do with age, number of children that you bear, um, you know, how old are you when you start conceiving? He put in all those parameters and came up with a brilliant scientific model that is very concise, like what you're describing. I took the other approach. I took the simplified model, but I know what you're saying is true. Those other factors, they do matter. How do I compensate for them? I broaden my few parameters that I do have so that they can account for that too. So I, what I do instead is give best case scenario, worst case scenario. I'm bringing this specific example up because I did this exercise independently of Dr. Robert Carter, and I came up with the exact same ranges that he did. Grayson, did you want a quick final word on subject two, and then we'll move to subject three, or do you want to move right to subject three? Up to you. I pretty much had my final statement in the last one. I mean, mainly plate tectonics, isostatic compensation was something fun that I learned about this topic, but mainly plate tectonics fully explains like why erosion rates are not problematic for an old earth. Okay, so subject one was a magnetic field decay. Subject two was erosion rates. And we are now moving on to subject three. And to the audience, I am all caught up on your questions. And so as always, excellent questions. We have a very lively chat as it has been a great debate so far. So uh, T-Rock, topic number three, floor is yours. Okay, topic number three is lunar recession. This is one of my, this is what I think is one of the most interesting ones. And I actually fortuitously, I think I may have consciously did this whenever we were defining what our five topics were going to be. Uh, but I, but I deliberately put, um, I think I did uh, lunar recession immediately after erosion rates. And um, there, it, we'll, we'll develop exactly why that is as we talk about this. But um, think of the the uh, famous uh, coin funnel that you might have seen at a place like McDonald's where you drop a coin in and it spirals around and around until it gets down towards the bottom. And what you notice is, is that the coin speeds up, of course, as it gets down to the bottom. So <clears throat> that is essentially the, the general idea. I, I, I'm well aware there's, there's significant configuration differences and whatever, uh, but that's the, the basic idea behind lunar recession is that as you wind the clock back, it's kind of like the uh, coin funnel example going forward. Um, the, the moon necessarily gets closer and closer to the earth. And the reason is, is because in real time going forward, it's drifting out further and further away. So we call it recession because we're winding the clock, clock backwards to see what happened 100 million years ago, 500 million years ago, that sort of thing. Um, and so one of the things you notice in the coin funnel example is eventually it gets to the bottom and it drops out. And so that's, I'll say that's roughly comparable to the Roche limit, even though the Roche limit is actually something different. The Roche limit describes what the, um, the closest distance the moon could be to the earth before it's moving so fast that it basically tears itself apart. Um, so <clears throat> The other example I liked to look at, and I apologize, we, uh, I really hate that we can't share the visuals here, but um, orbiting magnets. 
The general idea is very similar to orbiting magnets. You can hypothetically take a, a uniform uh, geometry magnet and use it as to represent like the Earth in a stationary axis and then take another magnet or even a non-magnet, any ferrous material that's attracted to it. And, and the point is you can spin one or, the, one or the other relative to the other one at a certain speed and for the strength of the magnet, it will hold it in orbit. Um, unfortunately, it won't do it indefinitely. Um, but, but think about that. You, you have one magnet here and the other one it's pulling, they're trying to pull themselves together, but the actual motion around is, um, like this, the actual motion around it is, uh, is what's keeping it from just slamming in together. So you've got all this kinetic energy to, to counterbalance the, the, uh, force of attraction between them. Okay. So, so that's the general idea behind lunar recession. Now there is a particular equation for describing the, uh, the recession rate. And what it looks like is, <clears throat> give me just a second, I'll pull this up and make sure, here we go. What it looks like is there's there's a, a number that's represented by the letter K. And um, what it is, is it's, I'll call it a, um, I don't know how to, it, it's, a, it's basically, it's, it's roughly equivalent to what you'd call a decay constant in radiometric dating. Um, but it is equal, K is equal to 1.2 times 10 to the 29th um, kilometers to the seventh power per year. In other words, how many trillions is that? That's two trillions and add another hundred uh, thousand to that. So it's a hundred thousand trillion trillion kilometers to the seventh power per year. That's what I'll call the, the quote unquote decay constant or the recession constant. Um, and then there's an integral equation that you use to um, basically translate that to a, a, an actual formula that you can just crunch the numbers in. That formula uh, crunches down to R to the seventh and R would be the distance between the moon and the earth from their, their centers of gravity. Um, R to the seventh divided by seven times K, that 1.2 times 10 to the 29th number I gave. Okay, so with that, you can calculate backwards and you can see, and you can basically predict in time, predict, so to speak, in time where the um, moon should have been relative to the earth given a certain number of years. As it turns out, 1.4 billion years and you've already crashed into the earth at that point. Um, and so, Everybody's familiar with the famous, um, I, the famous um, gravity is proportional. It's the inverse square law. If you're familiar with that. <clears throat> so the closer the, it, by distance that the uh, moon gets to the earth, the gravity increases um, by a factor of squaring, right? So <clears throat> what does that mean? If you wind the clock back 6,000 years to the, to the biblical time frame, there is so little difference you can't hardly tell. 6,000 years is not enough to affect anything, but 1.4 billion years is. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to go back and look at what did the evolutionists think that the globe looked like 100 million years ago? And um, what did it look like? 500 million years ago. I picked those values specifically because you don't have to go all the way to 1.4 billion years before you start having serious problems. So <clears throat> what this boils down to is as the 
the moon approaches the earth going backwards in time closer and closer and the gravity is increasing. So if you get, for example, 10% closer, the, the moon is about 240,000 miles away from the earth. And if you come in 10%, you've only come in about 24,000 miles, right? 10% closer represents a gravitational increase of like 23%. I've actually got this on a chart here, so I should just be reading it directly off of it. Um, but <clears throat> you can, um, and, and there's another weird thing that happens too. Not totally weird. It's just, it's just normal physics. But you, if you don't think about these things, you don't realize what the impact of implying billions of years really is. But the number of days that it takes for the moon to go around the earth also decreases. This is related to the idea of um, conservation of angular momentum. It's a little bit, it could be a little bit confusing, the terminology, but basically what that means is the linear speed of the moon is constant. And so as you're coming in closer to the earth, the linear speed stays the same. That's what the coin example was for. The linear speed is actually the same. It's the angular velocity that has to increase in order to keep the linear uh, speed the same. So that's why the days get shorter and shorter as you draw back in time. Um, so what I did was I kind of plotted this out and what you get is today you're at gravity, relative gravity strength is 1.0. Your, your average lunar uh, cycle is about 30.4 days. If you get uh, 10,000 miles closer, your relative gravity becomes 1.1. In other words, it's 10% higher. And your number of days drops down to 29.2. At 220,000, you're at um, relative gravity of 1.2. In other words, 20% higher. And um, your number of days in the lunar cycle drops down to 27.9. So <clears throat> what I find most interesting about this whole thing is, again, you don't have to go near the 1.4 billion year timeline to start seeing a problem. It happens way before that because of the amount of gravity. So there is a, that you, you end up with a problem with the tidal kinetic energy as the, as the moon comes across and draws uh, tides towards the continents. You have tidal energy, the tidal kinetic energy is described by the simple Newtonian physics E equals one half MV squared. Now, the, here's the thing though, the percent of mass of the tidal bulge is going to increase proportional to the gravitational increase. So if the gravitational increase is 20%, the mass of the tidal bulge also increases by 20%. The tidal velocity increase is <clears throat> related to the actual velocity increase of the moon, and that's the, the radial it's it, the tidal velocity as it's coming across this way is directly related to the um, the act, the radial velocity of the moon. So you get these days; they're getting shorter and sh uh, smaller and smaller number of days in the cycle. You're raising the tidal bulge. You're increasing its kinetic energy as it hits the continents. What does this all mean? It means that all the discussion we were having about erosional rates a little while ago, you're driving them through the roof exponentially. And it's necessarily exponential because the, of the inverse square law. And so what I did was I went back again, 100 million years, 500 million years, 100 million years ago, you can go on Wikipedia and you can see what they call the Western Interior Seaway, where it literally looks like it kind of dips through the Gulf of Mexico and from the Pacific side. And the seaway kind of cuts in between the middle of the North America 
um, in the United States. One minute, T Rock. Okay. Um, and and so what you have at a hundred million years ago, um, you have this crazy problem with sea levels in the conventional literature are so high, but the gravitational increase from the moon is also really high. Your erosional rates are driven through the roof, and basically you would never get continents today if that were true. So I'll stop there and we can go on a little bit further, but there's a there's a, another interesting equivalence to make there with 500 million years ago. Okay, well, I'll just ask if maybe you could be a little bit more concise in, in making your points or maybe like being clear about this is what is limiting the age of the earth because you, you talked for a long time there, you brought up a whole lot, but I'm not exactly clear. Where did you get that 1.4 billion number from? What was that equation that you did? So that is the standard open literature physics equation to describe how the moon is moving away from the earth because uh -huh. it's a it's a function of the gravity, the gravitational attraction between the two yes. bodies. It's a function of the distance between them. Yes. And the reason it's out to the sixth power on that K constant that I was describing is um, because it's also a function of the tidal bulge yes. changing over time, right? So yes, so ultimately, like the the tidal forces are what is supplying the energy for the moon to continue to move away. That's ultimately where the energy is being compensated. It's sort of, it's it's kind of kind of related to like if you tie a, a block to a string and 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 run it around like that. If you pull on the block, you speed up or pull on the string, you speed up the block, right? So you're, you're inducing tension and speed it up. Uh, yeah. Of course, in lunar recession, where it's receding away from the earth, yeah. the opposite is happening. You're letting the thing go a little bit slack. So your deal can actually fly away from you. No, uh, exactly. I mean, it is the tides. I mean, this is according to NASA. Uh, it's the, the energy compensation is it, that is causing that is fueling the moon to move away is from the tides. But that point is neither here nor there. So you're saying that in your equation that it is accounting for the inverse square law. So it's accounting for increased gravity, which would slow down the rate of recession, right? Over time going forward, yes. Yeah. So like, no, not going forward. The, the rate of recession increases over time because the strength of gravity decreases with distance. But yeah, that's what yeah, I said. Okay, so you would agree with that? Yeah. Okay. So, so say sorry, say that one more time, just so I make sure I was exactly. The rate of recession of the that the moon is moving away from us increases over time because the gravitational effects on the moon, like what is keeping it bound to Earth, decrease with the distance that it recedes. And you're talking about going forward in time. Yes, you're exactly backwards. The moon slows down its rate of recession as it gets away because the gravitational force between them is less. So it would increase its rate of recession, yeah. <laughs> Decrease. Look, the gravity is what is holding the moon close to us. Okay. So as there's less gravity as the moon gets farther away, there is less force keeping it closer. Therefore, it recedes faster. I mean, this should be very intuitive to understand. No, you're, unfortunately, you're exactly backwards. You're exactly backwards. It's it's it slows down. It's moving slower and slower away. It's not strictly a function of the gravity. Think about this distance. for a second. If gravity <clears throat> just turned off, zero gravity, the moon would go flying away at a very very fast speed. Okay. Okay. 
you What's agree with point? that, then you should agree with that the less gravity that is factoring on the moon, the faster its recession speed should be. No, uh, I'm sorry, but this is this is an actual physics problem, and yeah, nobody nobody in the open literature would agree with you because the gravity gets weaker, but the tidal energy gets weaker as well, yes. and you have to conserve angular momentum in the process. What that means is as you get further away, the number of days of rotation of the of the moon around the earth is going to increase. The number of days is going to increase. It's linear velocity as you measure it in terms of how you think about a straight line, even though it's going in a circle, it's linear velocity is constant. The gravitational force is weakening but what you did was kind of an equivocation fallacy. You flipped gravity completely off instantaneously to describe how it's going to fly away from the earth. And I can't disagree with that because that's totally true. My example of the string, as you let slack into the string, I'm going in a horizontal plane. What actually represents the weakening of gravity. What actually happens in, in that specific example is your, your weight out on the end of the string is going to start falling. Right. Uh -huh. yeah. um, but it's linear motion is its linear velocity is going to stay relatively constant until it's interrupted or declines by reason of friction in that example but we don't have friction per se in the earth moon system by linear velocity are you talking about like the like its velocity of recession no okay. i'm talking about its circular path because you have to understand the difference between angular velocity which is how many degrees it moves over time yeah versus linear velocity it's a circle that it's going it's technically not a circle at all and that's another problem but anyway it's 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 an uh, elliptical orbit but either yeah. way we'll pretend for the sake of argument it's a circle and that linear velocity i'm describing is its actual travel speed al along its path yeah which is different well, I, I i really don't see the issue of why you're getting like 1.4 like billion i mean the the rate at which the moon recedes is not constant um, that was the point. It's yeah. It's related to the sixth power of the radius between them. That's what causes the problem. It's not linear. If so you the rate of recession slows down as you go back in time. No. You're saying the exact opposite again of what standard physics tells us. I don't know. Standard physics true. tells us that as you, if you look at the graph, essentially what you're going to see is this graph looks like this and it looks somewhat linear, but because it's related to the sixth power of the radius, all of a sudden it hits this point. And I could tell you specifically, um, it looks like it is at about 250,000 kilometers. Um, what would that be in miles? Um, that's, that's a little over half. So it would be about 120 something thousand miles from here. But anyway, about half the distance, um, between here and there, all of a sudden that recession problem go winding the clock backwards, causes it to dive steeply into the earth because it's the sixth power. Well, there are two broad re like ways of which the moon can lose its energy, right? It can recede or it can like before it's tidally locked like it can get closer and closer to being tidally locked so when it gets to a certain distance it's close enough like the, the way that it would be losing its energy would not be through recession it would be through like tidal mechanisms until it's tidally locked and then once the moon is tidally locked then it begins to recede that's what the physics shows okay so 
you have a minor point there, but you got a major problem with it. Well, this is according you, to NASA. So you're you're talking about transferring the energy in the rotation of the moon that that's actually that actually is tidally locked now, right? Yeah. How in the world are you going to demonstrate that with real physical evidence some four billion years in the past or whenever they think it became tidally locked? How are you going to demonstrate that? I mean, you would just demonstrate it with physics, the mathematics, modeling. You would show that obviously like during the creation of the moon, <clears throat> right? It would not have been created. So you can locked. just write you up an equation and go, poof, I've solved the problem and tell yeah, everybody you we got evidence. An equation that's describing the process by which the moon would become tidally locked. And then we know that once it's tidally locked, then it begins to recede. So it, so, it hasn't been receding the whole time. It had to be tidally locked first. Um, only if you insist that there had to have been billions of years. Otherwise, you don't need that as a solution at all. All right, but um, it works with the physics. Right? But actually, it don't. And I, I'll, I'll make a little prediction for you. Okay. Um, so what I'm suggesting is that at 10% closer to where the moon is today, 24,000 miles is uh -huh. a huge erosional rate problem. And that 24,000 miles um, happens, um, I, I want to say, what did I figure out? It, it happens somewhere around the 450 million years ago or so. I'm, gonna, I'm going to predict that if you go into the open literature and find where anybody's talked about this title locking event, they have it well before 450 million years ago. Yeah, yeah, definitely would. I would agree with you there. I mean, and I'm getting this so the, information mostly from NASA. Like so maybe. the point is, is that you have a problem long before 500 million years ago. Yeah, I don't think that we have that problem, though. I have come across uh, no one that has shown those numbers that you have. And I am very skeptical of your equations that you've been using since in the last two so, points that you haven't been using the appropriate equations for the scenarios. Um, <laughs> that's funny considering you don't actually understand them, but, but again, this is the same thing I described earlier. You're going and looking at evolutionary storytelling and I'm going and looking at real physics. If you go look at real physics, you will find what I'm saying. Oh, so NASA is not looking at real physics. NASA isn't built around what happened a hundred million years ago. NASA is built about building, um, satellites and spaceships yeah and stuff today yeah that sounds like real physics to me you'd think that they would be using real physics and you're them. not separating the the difference between building real-time technology and imagining something in the past nasa can't build a spaceship because the moon tidally locked 1.8 billion years ago that's got nothing to do with it so you don't find the equations i'm talking about in the conversations about something that happened 1.8 billion years ago, they don't go together. That's why you're not finding them together. So where do you find the equations that you're talking about? I just told you. Go you to the open. You gestured broadly to the open. Go, so I'll be, I'll be a little more specific. If you talk to somebody like Michael Ord, who was a climatologist at one time, what I'm describing is directly relevant in modern climatology. Because you have to understand the effects of the moon on the climate. Mm -hmm. So that's where you will find it. It's not, and they won't have any pretext to evolution unless they've got some sort of weird agenda. But if you're literally talking about real time, how do I predict the weather tomorrow? Mm -hmm. That's where you find the conversation and the formulas that I'm talking about. So 
you're finding the formulas from some this Michael Ord guy who's a climate scientist. Nope, I didn't say that. Okay, well, you know, if you can find any actual astronomy or you know physics that is uh, that it, like any literature that is is verifying your use of these equations and the results that you're talking about, I'd be interested in seeing it because you know I, I looked through the physics journals for this topic. And I, I didn't see any use of these equations. I see the math that supports tidal locking and then recession of the moon. And that fully covers it. I'll tell you what. I will uh, see if I can find the source for that specific equation. And I will see if I can get it to you. Um, I'll, I can get it to you by email or whatever your preference is. I don't know. Sure. But um, if you would like to see where that comes from, the open literature, I'd yeah. be glad to share that with you. I just don't, I don't have my screen share deal uh, enabled right now. I can see it on my own screen, but I, it's, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good. Okay. Well, um, what journal was it published in? Uh, for that, I'll be honest with you. I don't know off the top of my head, okay. um, but I used, uh, and I'll full disclosure, I used a secondary source, but it's to so me. Like Creation.com? So it's a complete non-issue because if you go to my secondary, what I'm calling secondary sources, they provide you and you should do this. Since you like to do your own science research, I highly recommend you do this because most, most evolutionists do not seem to be familiar with the uh, creation model at all. I, I'm not trying to project that on you, but I know that's such a common theme. What I would suggest for you is to go to creation.com, see if you can find the information, but I can tell you with all certainty that they are very good very good about documenting the open science sources. So you can, as a secondary source, you can go through there and find them. I do have a lot of original well, sources. We might have my... a different definition of what is a, a, a good quality of documenting sources. I, I recognize that they have a bibliography. I've read several creation.com articles, um, but I don't think that they do a very good job of accurately representing the data that they talk about. It seems like they're definitely trying to push an agenda and they will misrepresent any scientific literature that they can in order to do that. Well, that's a lot more like an ad hominem than a legitimately addressing the science. What I yeah. would suggest instead of taking that approach you just did, go and look at the sources that they're, they yeah. offer at the bottom because I do this and I have literally had evolutionists provide me with sources to what their trusted sites are and they don't say what the evolutionists say they do. And, well, and I can't so speak it, for others, but we're talking about like the uh, uh, geophysics science. That's a major journal. Yeah. If you don't trust those. Yeah. Well, I, I trust major scientific journals. What I don't trust is creation.com. So I feel like oftentimes people will read a creation.com article and they will trust the authors of that article that these authors have read and understand the sources that they're talking about in the secular journals. And oftentimes, Pretty much every time when I have actually read the article, I've gone to their sources. Their sources are not saying what they say they, their sources are saying. Like they are misrepresenting the secular journal articles. So, so I've seen that almost every creation.com article does that. That's funny. My experience is the exact same going the opposite direction. All right. But, but um, I, I guess... Let me summarize some things real quick uh, on on these because you, you asked this one. I was just going to say, yeah, T-Rock, if you wanted to summarize your points now and both of you wrap up your points on subject number three, mm -hmm. lunar recession, been very thorough so far, definitely a technical debate. And so I'd recommend 
I know it's the kind of debate you're going to want to watch a couple times. And so, T-Rock, go ahead, and then we will uh, transition into subject number four. Okay, oh, so for subject four, can we do the uh, the soft tissues for dinosaurs? Oh, you don't want to? Okay. Well, we can I, do it it's just that there is a direct correlation, like I just showed, there's a direct correlation between or, um, uh, erosion rates and lunar recession. And there's also a direct correlation between carbon-14 and dinosaur soft tissue. That's why I put. That's why I kept the original order I, I sent in the email because it just, whether it was fortuitous or I intentionally did it, it the, the order happened to work out quite right, well. Whatever's but, clever. Okay, so uh, let me let me recap something super quick for you because you asked a specific thing about how does that limit the age of the Earth in general? So the erosion rates by themselves limit the age of the Earth to under about ten million years per the. Uh, the some of the information I was reading a little while ago. Uh, how does lunar recession limit the age of the Earth? Well, in standard apologetics, they'll cite that 1.4 billion number. That's the point of crashing. Realistically, when you combine the actual physical effects it has on the surface of the Earth, it limits that 10 million years even more. But if you take it all by itself, it causes a problem with well within well within 500 million years um so put uh, but but the the tighter limit is from the erosion rates themselves it just gets worse when you when you uh, include the lunar recession problem okay so carbon 14 uh, I'll, I'll switch a little bit on that uh, we all already talked about magnetism I, I will tell you that one limits the age of the earth the tightest actually to about ten thousand years um <clears throat> We can talk about that again later if we want, but radiometric uh, dating for carbon-14, I'll just say it up front before we start, it's going to limit the age of the Earth to, um, I'm going to say 50,000 years max, but uh, you you could argue 100,000 if you wanted to. I, it's neither here nor there to me, but uh, 50 to 100,000 years maximum. Um, and then dinosaur soft tissue. <sighs> Here's another one where I kind of take slightly different path from uh, mainstream Christian apologetics. They will typically cite the maximum decay um, uh, allowance for soft tissue to be, you know, a million years for collagen or something like that. I'm going to demonstrate um, that it, that's actually not the case if we can get that far. It actually is limited much, much below that. Uh, I'll say 20,000 years, probably just throwing a number out there, but it, it there's absolutely no way you can get past 20,000 years with dinosaur soft tissue. Okay. Now, before I start, if you care to reflect on any of that, go ahead. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm going to take the opposite stance. Collagen can last a really long time when it's highly cross-linked. So. Okay. So we should talk about that later. Um, yeah. I was going to do radiometric decay. The dinosaur soft tissues actually prove an old earth. That's... That's where we're going to conclude. <laughs> if you mix and match worldviews, you can come to that conclusion. No, they debunk a young Earth. Earth. Like what we see with the dinosaur soft tissues completely debunks a 6,000-year Earth. So that's, that's going to really be it. The, point, the first point of evidence that I'll make for the old Earth will be the dinosaur soft tissue. Okay. So are we doing, just to be clear uh, for myself, the audience, subject number four is radiometric decay, you said, uh, T-Rock? That is uh, specifically carbon-14, yes. Carbon-14, okay. 
All right, go ahead. Um, Let's start. Uh, topic number four begins now. I think I'm going to abbreviate this one a little bit, though, because it's there's a lot to it, and I want to abbreviate it down to the point where it actually becomes relevant to dinosaur soft tissue. So <clears throat> carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,730 years. Okay. What that means, effectively, and again... I actually did the math. You can do this. I do it in an Excel sheet. You can calculate the mass of the earth and pretend. And, and what was specifically what I did was how many atoms of carbon 14 constitute the equivalent mass of the earth. Like the entire earth is made of carbon 14. And then you can just use the standard half-life decay rate. And what you find out is you are down to the very last atom in less than 1 million years. Now, if you just jump past that and go to the mass of a human being or the mass of a, take a very large dinosaur that let's say hypothetically it weighs 80 tons or something like that. You can calculate the amount of carbon 14 it might've had in its body and then start with that many atoms and run the math. And of course you come up with way, way less than a million years. You come up with something that looks more like, um, and I did this on one of my, my other slides, but, um, you come up with, um, let me see if I can pull that in here real quick and I'll tell you what those numbers were. So you're not gonna use bones in this illustration, are you? Because you can't carbon date bones. <laughs> that's that's kind of funny. I'm, I, I, all I'm really demonstrating here is if you start with X number of atoms yeah. that you would expect in a living body yeah. at the time of death, mm -hmm. that many atoms decays away 100% down to the very last atom yeah. within some number of years, right? Yeah, I'll agree with you on that, for sure. No no okay. argument here. Okay. Like the, the argue, the, what we see with C14 in dinosaur bones or any kind of thing that you want to bring up, like diamonds, is that's new carbon-14. That's not original carbon-14. So carbon-14 is continuously being created in the atmosphere. So sure. and in other sources as well. Sure. So that that's okay. the whole that's the whole rebuttal basically. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's not going to make a whole lot of sense here in just a minute. <clears throat> okay. So human body, we'll, we're going to say I used uh, eighty kilograms. Um, human body has approximately three point eight times ten to the T Rock, I already agreed with all this. Like I, I agreed with your calculations that you're going to run out of carbon fourteen after a short amount of time. I agree. Let's move beyond that. Okay, so uh, just for the sake of the audience, what you get out of that is, um, hold on just a second, I'll tell you what. For that. I don't think it's really relevant for the discussion, though. That's what I'm saying. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I, I'm going to have to jump forward to the part of dinosaur soft tissue to explain why your idea, one of the reasons your idea is not going to work. Are we combining, like, the points four and five then sort of like i said there's some overlap and that's why i kind of strung them together um but, but I'll, I'll try and stick more specifically to the carbon 14 thing it's just that when you do dating it becomes relevant so i think what i understand you were saying um new carbon 14 produced in bones not produced in bones, incorporated into bones, because when bones are deposited, 
and during the fossilization process, they go through something called recrystallization. So uh -huh. the actual bones will break down and then recrystallize using elements in the environment around them, including carbon-14. So they actually are incorporating new carbon-14 into bones as part of recrystallization. Can, can, let, me, let me get you to clarify this point on that. Are you describing 100% permineralization? No, no, no. So this is called bone recrystallization. So this this is a known phenomenon. This is why bones are not typically used to carbon for, to carbon date anything because it's known that bones will recrystallize like in months to years, or, like that they, they will recrystallize like continuously and get carbon fourteen from their environment uh, rather than preserve the carbon fourteen that was originally in those bones when the organism died. So bones are not used for carbon dating typically. Okay. I, I, I understand what you're saying. <clears throat> and I would have predicted a couple of years ago, I would have predicted that that is a bunch of baloney, just to be perfectly honest with you. I, I kind of did a couple of years ago before I even knew what kind of technical information was out there. And the reason I predicted that was because common sense should tell you that in order to get carbon-14 from the surroundings of the bone into the bone, you need a transport mechanism, right? Well, you need a diffusion mechanism and you need a recrystallization process that is incorporating this carbon-14, which is both explained. But it has to move the, the carbon-14 atom from there to the bone. Yeah, diffusion. Diffusion. Yeah. What, what are you calling diffusion? That is the movement of atoms. At strictly an atomic level, or are we talking molecular. about uh -huh, at a molecular, molecular level? Yeah. So you're you're talking about minerals. It can be gaseous. It can be mineral in nature. Diffusion applies to all of these things. Okay. You know, like, this is known. This is why bones are not used to carbon date. Even even recent bones. Even even recent bones are not used for carbon dating because okay. of this process. So the reason I would have predicted this, whether it's correct or not, is, is irrelevant. It was kind of a gut check for me. I was sitting there thinking, OK, how do you get to carbon-14 from here to inside the bone if it's contamination? Well, pretty much the only mechanism that you're going to get it there is through water transport. It can be water. It can be gaseous. It can also be bacterial. So bacteria will oftentimes live within bones, like okay. under the ground. And okay. bacteria are living organisms that obviously res respire. So they're breathing in new carbon-14 and depositing it in those dinosaurs. So uh, I can talk about the, the, the bacteria thing, but that's kind of a rabbit trail. So I'm going to stick to the main line here about how you get, how you allegedly get regenerate carbon into the bone. And what I'm suggesting is about the only common sense mechanism that contributes significantly is water transport. In other words, per your comment, molecular level transport of minerals down through the bone. But that is the very process that defines permineralization. Now, one of the big problems I have with what you described is that there are a huge number of bones, dinosaur bone era bones, that are found as identical to modern bone, just dried out. <clears throat> and so there's a funny geological test that they do in the field where they put their tongue on the, the bone to see if it's actually bone or if it's mineral. If it sticks to your tongue, it's a bone. If it does not stick to your tongue, it's a mineral. 
Um, in other words, fully permineralized. Okay, so my prediction from a long time ago, notwithstanding, because like I said, I'm willing that I was completely off base on that, although I, I still to this day don't think I am. I stumbled across very fortuitously. I actually went looking for something, but I, I came across this um, particular study that was done, and this is where the crossover comes between carbon-14 dating and, and dinosaur soft tissue. Some folks in Germany and China got together and did a study and had this big conference about this very subject, carbon-14 in dinosaur bones. And so what it boils down to, and, and I actually, I think this is one where I, I should probably uh, actually read from some of my notes here instead of skipping them. Um, Hadrosaur femur bone from Glendive, Montana, 5.59% of modern carbon. Allosaur bones from Colorado, 2.02% of modern carbon. Triceratops bone from Montana, 2.16% modern carbon. At 520 of this particular video that I was watching, this guy was giving his presentation at this big science conference in China, I believe, but it was a, 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 a coordinated effort between some Germans and some Chinese uh, entities. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, 520 of the video, he says, you see that all range from between around 0.7 to 6.5% modern carbon, okay? At 11 minutes in the video, he's got this, this uh, chart up that shows a lot of inter really interesting detail. He says, low probability of contamination because of, and that's kind of the title of his slide, is low probability of contamination. So this is where your idea of you somehow got regenerated carbon-14 is it's honestly it's just blown completely out of the water with this particular study <clears throat> Concor uh, percent modern carbon concordance of organics and extraction if percent modern carbon of organics stemmed entirely from contaminant then we would expect intermediate percent modern carbon and in, in other words, it wouldn't be at a constant rate. It would be at some kind of erratic. Rate. Unless bone recrystallizes, which it does. Okay. Like this is the whole process that I feel like you're just ignoring here. No, I'm, I'm not. Recrystallization of bone accounts for this. I, I'm not. And, and there is a scientific method that helps you delineate between what you're describing and what's actually happening because what you're describing is not what's actually happening but there is a method in science to help figure this out and that's what i'm describing here <clears throat> low probability of contamination because of percent modern carbon concordance between ams and beta ms small sample size and large sample size inhomogeneously distributed contaminant would be found so they used two different methods and found that the percent modern carbon was very uniform through any given sample. Exactly like we would predict <clears throat> crystallization. Then why do a bunch of scientists say that you should find this inhomogeneous distribution? If it was right. contamination from the environmental source, <clears throat> that's true. That, but that if it's is, from look, a result of recrystallization, we would recrystallization expect Recrystallization is contamination. It's not. Again, how did you get that in there? It was through a contaminating source. It was incorporated by the bone. Okay. <clears throat> so 11 minutes of the video. Again, again bone is not time. used to radiocarbon date for this reason. Even a few months or years, like it, within 10 years, this is going to happen. Crystallization is ongoing process. I'm the actual not... chemical structure of bone 
changes after it's deposited. That's why bone is not good for carbon dating. I'm not done with the method that they went through to determine this. So I think you're, you're a little premature still. Um, <clears throat> okay. Again, low probability of contamination because of dot, dot, dot. Matrix on Triceratops had PMC of 6.4, which is huge contamination needed to produce the sample of percent modern carbon. In other words, if your idea were true, you still could not get anywhere near 6.4% of modern carbon. <clears throat> Point number two, uh, again, low probability of contamination because of the same pretreatment procedure delivers percent modern carbon for many plant fossils. Would have This would have occurred in these plant fossils too. And that's a direct There's no bones that. in plants. Plants don't have bones. So they can't recrystallize, can they? Exactly, yes. But they have the same carbon-14 stats in them. If they're contaminated, but I don't think that they are. I don't think that what you're reading is accurate. Okay. The percentage of carbon becomes smaller the further we get from the fossil. That's one of the reasons why there's low probability of contamination. Results sorted by PMC. This was probably, this to, to me, what I got from the video, the guy giving the presentation found this to be the most striking piece of evidence in this, this whole thing. Results sorted by PMC. Inside each group, a very good PMC concordance is obtained. So what that means is he had actually had, and, and so this is, again, this completely refutes your idea of, of this bone. He was looking at specific proteins and, and different types of soft tissue elements, and um, they were identified as soft tissue, not bone. And so what he said was when after he sorted it by the percent modern carbon, what you fell out was this very natural looking um, uh, line of all of, say, collagen fell here. All of whatever, you know, different type of soft tissue fell here. All of another one fell here. They were very neatly grouped together in soft tissues, which is not what you would expect at all through a random contamination. Process. Yeah, that, that makes total sense based on what I've been saying. You've been talking about bone, not soft tissue. Yeah, I know, but the, the different yeah. kind of material, it's, like bone, would it's not new carbon fourteen at different rates based on the material. That uh, makes total uh, sense. Soft tissue doesn't go through recrystallization. It, yeah, it by definition, has not. Yeah, that's why it has less C fourteen in it than bone. That's not what this said. Six point four percent. That's so a soft tissue reading? number, huh? What are you reading from? This was the in the 11 minutes of this video. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, I can read off what the, the, the video is. You should go watch this. It's on YouTube. Um, it was video slash or YouTube.com slash watch question mark B equals Q B D H three. I don't know what that character is. It's like the vertical uh, deal, not a not an alpha character. One UJPQ. Anyway, it's it's just some random entity. I, and I couldn't tell you whether they were creationist or not. I was only interested in the data that they came up with. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so I said conclusions and suggestions for further work. Um, 14C in dinosaur bones detected, which is likely endogenous. Conclusions and suggestion for further work. Results can be explained by rapid horizontal strata formation as observed in laboratory experiments with moving water. So when he got to the end, again, I think what was most striking to him as an individual seemed to have been how these percents 
seemed to match up perfectly with each different type of soft tissue that was found. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that maybe have a, a, a slight something to do with that, that the percent of carbon atoms are different depending on tissue types? Well, there's, there's, uh, yeah, there I mean, different molecules that contain different amounts of carbon in them inherently. Yeah, that makes that exactly makes my point, though. So yeah, uh, if it's original, like, it's original carbon fourteen. That's exactly what you just said. I don't think that's what I said. I think I said that the molecules themselves have more carbon in them. You said they have a natural distribution depending on the tissue type. Yeah, a natural distribution of carbon atoms in general. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's original. And, so if and incorporating so, new carbon, then we would expect that new carbon to incorporate differentially based on the tissue type. So backing up just a little bit in my the way I actually organize this, um, there is also carbon-14 found in diamonds. Yep. There, there's also carbon-14 found in coal. Sure. So the what carbon... What do you think is the number one contaminant in diamonds? Say again? What do you think is the number one largest share of contaminants found in diamonds? I don't think they're finding contaminants in diamonds. They are. <laughs> Even in gemstones, in, in fine quality cut gemstones, the number one contaminant is nitrogen. You're going to find mostly carbon atoms in a, in a lattice, but you're going to find some nitrogen atoms interspersed with that. And how is carbon-14 created, I wonder? Oh, right. It's from nitrogen atoms. So it makes sense that we would find low trace amounts of carbon-14 in diamonds, which is what we find. Um, I, I think you completely bypassed one of the very common evolutionary arguments about this. Um, diamonds in particular mm -hmm. are not always from atmospheric carbon-14. You can also yeah. have exactly carbon 14 produced in the earth when diamonds are formed they form with a small amount of nitrogen already inherent in them okay. it's the number one largest contaminant of <clears throat> diamonds so you're telling me so it sounds like what you're telling me is that the ams method for counting literally the atoms themselves individual uh -huh. atoms can't distinguish between a nitrogen and a carbon 14 atom nitrogen decays into carbon 14 via neutron capture and you're telling me that the AMS, AMS method can't distinguish. Otherwise, you wouldn't get this false reading. You get carbon-14 in carbon atoms that derives from the nitrogen that was already in the diamonds. So you've already said it. Diamonds diamonds not being living tissue at all, or yeah. and never were. Yeah. Animals are. They also have nitrogen in them. If what you said was true, then you would also have contamination in living tissues or once living tissues as it were yeah it's a very very small amount of carbon 14 that you find in diamonds i mean okay. it's barely even a blip on the mass spec that is actually not true it, it is, is true it's no. statistically barely different than a zero value so i went back in the error bars for i went back and looked and to be to be perfectly clear here these yeah. are independent laboratories that do this uh-huh and they typically do this sort of thing in the context of deep time, because most dating of this type has more to do with the evolutionary. Nobody is dating diamonds. They're not <laughs> I, doing this in the context. I know that. Of deep time. I'm aware of that. 
but somebody was smart enough and, and actually it was a creationist. It was bomb gardener or whatever. Creationists were not the only ones who have dated, who have actually tried to date uh, or, or find carbon 14 and diamonds. That's a complete myth. Um, independent secular scientists have done this as well. Um, yeah. And it doesn't, have you ever done a mass spec? No. Well, if you do, then you'll see that you get a, signals and a whole lot of noise. You never, ever get a zero value in a mass spec. You get a ton of noise. Never, so, ever? Yeah. No, it's all noise fluctuations at the bottom level. And you just have to look for the signal and the noise. And you can use algorithms okay. to see where your signal is strongest. Okay. Whenever you run any kind of mass spec. So you're going to okay. have a background noise for all of this. And the amount of C14 that are, finding down, are, that are found in diamonds via mass spectroscopy, that's how they're doing these measurements, is within that background noise amount. Actually, it's not. It is. You can get, you can get ages that range in the 45,000 yeah. down to about 34,000 from diamonds. And Everything I've seen was around 55,000, which <clears> is right <throat> at the very threshold of where you barely have any C14 in the sample. Sorry, you, you need to look a little harder. They go all the way down to about 35,000. And to that point, 35,000 is well within, as a matter of fact, so is 40 and so is 45,000, is within the accepted uh, range usage of carbon-14. Yeah, that is. <clears throat> and so you, you can easily fall below the 40,000 year mark with, with diamonds. Now, yeah. you made the comment that you've got all this noise and you have to kind of figure out where the energy spikes are to determine what the actual carbon-14 signature itself is, right? Uh -huh. If that's true, and I'm not contesting that it is or isn't, I, I'll, I'll basically just say I agree with you. If it's true, you would be able to calibrate all the noise out of every sample you, you took. Yeah. Or if you couldn't, no carbon-14 dates would be valid for anything. Yeah, that's why the amount that we find in diamonds is basically noise. It's not signal. It's not the noise. Amount when, look, this is what I want to say. If you use an improper methodology, if you apply a method incorrectly, of course you're going to get incorrect results. If you have a mathematical equation and you don't use PEMDAS, the order of operations, you're going to get the wrong result. That doesn't mean that the, the equation that was wrong. That means that you didn't apply PEMDAS correctly. If you don't apply radiometric dating correctly, you're not going to get the correct results. If you try to radiocarbon date a non-living material like a diamond, you're obviously not going to get the correct results because you've incorrectly applied the methodology. So let's be clear here. The labs that do this, they're independent labs that don't do creation science per se. If they don't know what they're doing and they're the ones that did the test, if they don't know what they're doing, then how can any of their dates be correct? They're not radiocarbon dating these diamonds. Yes, they are. They are not. Even What's if they're they measuring the amount of C14 in them and they could be doing that. I'm not saying that there are no diamonds that could have C14 in them. I don't know. Like I said, I've seen the studies where it's a very small trace amount. 55,000 years was the date based on that amount. It's basically noise. If you're saying that there are studies out there where they are getting noticeable amount of 14. I haven't read them, but if you send them, I will read them, but I will guarantee if these were not creationists, they were not radiocarbon dating these diamonds because 
you don't radiocarbon date anything that's not living material. You only radiocarbon date living material that was made by breathing organisms. They don't. So let me put a real fine point on that. They don't carbon date coal or or um, dinosaur soft tissue either, but they are living organisms. Dinosaur soft tissue, not bone, but they they they'll do the bone too if you pay them because that's what they're there for. They they they're there to make money and and earn a profit on their services. If you pay them, they will do it. They're living tissue. You still find the carbon-14. If the comment you made about the, the background noise were, had any validity at all, and, and I'll be honest with you, like I said, I, I'm not even disagreeing with that point. You would calibrate it out of everything, including the diamonds, mm -hmm. and you still get more carbon than can possibly exist in 1 million years. It can possibly exist in 100,000 years because you're up to the 1% roughly. You're up around the 1% of modern carbon at that point, And it's still there. But the whole point of the diamond study is because of all the things that you could do, diamonds are the least likely to be contaminated from outside sources because of how tight the lattice structure is. The most likely is living tissue because it's porous and it absorbs water. Yeah, unless you have a source of C14 within the diamonds, which you do. That's Gentlemen. what I'm trying to tell you. C14 decays way too rapidly to have any source left. Yeah, N14 decays into C14 via neutron capture, and there is N14 within diamonds. So you have an internal source that can generate new C14 within a diamond. Okay, uh, T-Rock, take a note if you'd like to, if there's anything you'd... Uh prefer to respond to from grace in there we'll give grace on the last word on that subject subject for radiocarbon dating so you both uh, first you both get an award for endurance because we, we're now at two and a half hours of basically free-flowing discussion so great job technical comprehensive and definitely an engaging uh, debate so we're moving on now to subject number five which is the final subject of the night. Then we'll do three minute concluding statements, which basically is just to wrap up thoughts and points. And then we're gonna get into some audience questions. So T-Rock, we'll hand it back to you. Topic number five, here we go. Okay, we're talking about dinosaur soft tissue. So I'm gonna skip past the, um, the intro with Mary Schweitzer and all that. Um, there's some very interesting stuff. Uh, Grayson mentioned cross-linking, which, um, of course, there's there's nothing new about that. And most of the discussion you've probably heard before today has to do with the specific chemistry behind cross-linking. I'm not going to do that. I can easily demonstrate cross-linking the way Mary Schweitzer did by simply whipping out a piece of beef jerky and throwing it on the shelf. That's cross-linking. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so what she did... I'll, I'll touch on this briefly because it's relevant to my, my next real point that I'm going to make. What she did was she took and centrifuged iron out of some ostrich blood, I believe. Would you agree with that? I don't know about ostrich blood, but I'm aware of Mary Schweitzer's work. <clears throat> okay. This is where the cross-linking idea came from. She, well, she it, it's chemistry. I mean, I don't think Mary Schweitzer originated cross-linking. I didn't say that. I said the use of what I'm saying is the use of cross-linking to explain the preservation of dinosaur soft tissue. When, we, when we look at the dinosaur soft tissue, what we see is the collagen is highly cross-linked. That's an objective fact. So 
to that point, what she did was she wanted some explanatory power. She found red blood cells, and there are specific quotes where she says red blood cells. Um, and she said she did not believe it until they had done it 17 times. To me, that's unprecedented. Why would you, why would a scientist think they had to do something 17 times in a row to prove to themselves that what they were seeing is what they were seeing? Um, anyway, so the cross-linking thing, what she actually did was centrifuge some iron out of some uh, ostrich blood. And she used that to soak the dinosaur soft tissue in and for some period of time hence creating her own version of cross-linking. And then what she did was after that part was done, she put it into water, set it on a shelf, and walked away for two years. And then that became the de facto explanation for the preservation of soft tissue per your own comment a few minutes ago. Okay, so <clears throat> here's where I want to go. Though. Forensics, real forensic science. And this is where Mary Schweitzer's approach was, I, I mean, I, I don't want to denigrate her in any way. She, she, she's obviously a very technical person, but she completely missed the mark on this one. And I'm going to explain why. Um, <clears throat> there were, where do I have this? Make sure I get this. Um, just, just so I can be clear really for a second, just to, to explain to the audience, because I saw some questions about what, what cross-linking is. Collagen mm -hmm. is normally kind of like a trifold. It, it's kind of like a, a you know, DNA is like two lines twisting together. Collagen is like three lines twisting together. But those lines are not necessarily chemically bound together. They are physical mm -hmm. interactions keeping them together. But cross-linking basically creates chemical bonds between different parts of the collagen uh, fibers to, that makes them extremely stable. So they do not decay in the same way that non-cross-linked collagen decays. So it is new chemical bonds that are formed that stabilize the collagen. Yes. Yes. Cross-linking is basically a change in configuration of the iron atoms in this case, because she's not trying to invoke. Not the iron atoms. She, she's, she's not trying to, she literally. Iron atoms can catalyze cross-linking, but they, they are okay. not um, like. But what is the point is, it's not an external iron source. It's, it's not an external iron, non-biological iron source. She was going to specifically ostrich blood because of the evolutionary paradigm that birds evolved from dinosaurs, whatever. Um, but that's why she used ostrich blood to have something comparable in her mind to the dinosaur soft tissue. Okay. And, and her, her point was that it was not to be explained by non-biological iron, whether it's the catalyst or otherwise is kind of irrelevant. It's, it's biological and it's related to. Well, we have seen non-biological iron cause cross-linking in green she's, she's weeding that out though and okay. and what well, she's saying true. is she's saying it's in situ to and native it's endogenous to the animal itself that was preserved well that's, that's not necessarily the case but okay <clears throat> so <clears throat> she published this in the open literature that you do trust so I'll just leave it at that. <clears throat> um, anyway. I mean, I agree with Mary Schweitzer's work. I think she's a good scientist. And, and, and I think she's a good scientist, too. Like I said, I don't want to dis denigrate her, but she missed the mark completely on this one, where she should have made her starting point was not highly centrifuged and, and concentrated iron. She should have done her starting point with taphonomy. Uh, How did the animal die? That's where she should have started. 
Okay, so what I did was I went and looked at a forensics page that has nothing whatsoever to do with origins in general. This is just basic forensics. The following factors affect the progress of decomposition in water and can be easily altered by disposal method. Clothing, paramortem trauma, access to the water surface, energy of water movement, biodiversity, floor substrate and geology, body weight, water and air temperature, moisture, pH, partial pressure of O2 and other gases, and the local chemical environment. Okay, <clears throat> when remains are exposed, and this is from this article, it was at newhaven.edu, um, <clears throat> when remains are exposed to aqueous environments for prolonged periods of time, the body experiences disarticulation and the detachment of soft tissue. This is forensics. This is what they do whenever they're trying to solve a crime, for example, um, a, a typically murder crime of some sort. That one statement is extremely important here because how do you find most dinosaur fossils? You find them highly disarticulated. Okay. The average quantity of DNA that was detected for bone samples that were incubated in fresh water for 72 hours was approximately 0.0209 plus or minus 0.0231 nanograms per microliter. This was a significant loss of DNA at about 350 fold. That's fresh water. She did, she did three different salinities, I'll say. One was fresh, one was a kind of a middle, a middle uh, salinity, and the other one was a higher salinity. Okay, <clears throat> the average quantity of DNA that was detected for bone samples that were incubated in salt water, in other words, the higher uh, salt concentration, for 72 hours, that's the key, 72 hours, was approximately 4.87 times 10 to the minus 4, plus or minus, in nanograms per microliter. In other, in other words, about 15,270 fold. That's also important because most dinosaur fossils are found in a marine sediment environment. <clears throat> so much faster rate for salt water than is for fresh water. And to be specific, she's talking about bone and bone soft tissue as opposed to other types of soft tissue like, like skin and stuff like that. <clears throat> of the three aqueous environments, salt water exhibited the greatest DNA loss. This was consistent in both the bone samples and the tissue samples. 72 hours, that's the key. Disarticulation. What this says about Mary Schweitzer's experiment is she was basically insinuating that blood pooling, for example, could create a high iron-rich environment to, per your comment, catalyze the cross-linking. Yeah. The problem is, is that the way you find the bones, they've already been disarticulated through high levels of water degradation before they were deposited. Okay, what about iron-rich soils? That's pretty common. <clears throat> like I said, she eliminated that as one of the um, contributors. Well, and, no and the reason is, is because if it were an external non-biological source like what you're you're yep. you're implying yes, we have seen evidence that it does it's it. the same problem you would have had to have gotten it in there through water transport and you would have permineralized the material instead of cross-linked it nope i mean look a last year in greenland they found the oldest preserved dna ever it's like two million year old dna and you know why it was preserved so so well for two million years, which is way farther than anyone expected to find DNA, because it, the soil was very iron rich, and it was very dry, and 
it was very cold. It was in Greenland. You can look it up. It's horseshoe crab DNA from 2 million years ago in Greenland. The study came out last year. So we have lots of evidence that high iron enriched environments do cause cross-linking. The DNA was cross-linked. Uh, <clears throat> like I said, I, crabs, they live in the salt water that this forensic science is describing. They live in that salt water continuously. So at the instant they die, what you're implying is they basically became instantly fossilized because if any days went by at all, crabs of all things get ripped apart in the bottom of the ocean very quickly. They can't sit there for a long time That's waiting for this form. fossilization. So the 72 hour thing that this forensic study shows, basically it invalidates the, the uh, hypothesis put forward on this DNA because um, it's, it's too fast. It would have already been gone. Yeah. I've got news for you. Fossils form from rapid like burial, <laughs> like all fossils form from rapid burial. So it's got to be rapid burial for you to have fossilization or else it's just going to decay away. That's how that's, every fossil is formed. That's interesting because that's what creationists say all the time. That's also and what geologists and paleontologists say because it's really, true. then yes, how do you, every do, paleontologist will tell you that. How do you get three meters of sediment or 10 meters or 20 meters? Or, the depths are actually very thick. How do you get three meters of sediment and equate that to a long geological period if the sediments are all deposited really quick. Yeah, because their different layers are deposited at different rates. You can have some layers of sediment that are deposited very rapidly, and you can have some layers that are deposited very slowly, like limestone. Like so it, if it's you not find formally laid down. If you find soft tissue or you find in in, in particular DNA, and, and let's be a little more clear here, because to my knowledge, uh, nobody's ever really found anything more than about um, six peptides or, or six base pairs long of, of DNA in, in ancient tissue, right? We have lots of sequences from ancient DNA. That, that was going to be one of my main points in this, was that when we look bio biochemically at what we're actually seeing in these soft tissues of dinosaurs, we are not seeing any DNA. We don't find any DNA. We don't find anything that would decay quickly, right? We only find things that would be very stable, highly cross-linked collagen and, and other very stable molecules. In fact, are you familiar with Fuzrana? He's yeah. a creationist. And he has looked at this and said, this is evidence of the old earth. This disproves a 6,000-year-old earth. And he's a creationist. He's, he's, a not, he's not a biblical creationist. He's a Christian and he's an old earth creationist. So I will say with my point with this, we do find DNA in bones and and in uh in remains that are six thousand years old we do find dna in them we have never found dna for dinosaurs so uh, yes why don't we have huh we have we have we, not found dinosaurs you yet. just don't read enough apparently because what i described the the six base pairs long because dna dna being a long fragile uh, uh chain of molecules is it's because of its length partially and because of its fragility, it's a lot of it is, is hydrogen bonds, weak hydrogen bonds that yeah. hold some of the links together. Right. Yeah. So there is a rate that you calculate like a half-life that you don't like. Um, but there's a, a half-life rate you, you do for that. Say, okay, yeah. the chain breaks at, after so much time, the yeah. chain breaks again and you keep yeah. whittling it down. And it's just like the carbon 14 problem. You yeah. break it too many times. So, what has been found in dinosaur soft tissue is up to about six base pairs long, which 
blows all real-time scientific study on half-life degradation That's completely out of the water. That is not true at all. Yes. I don't know what creation.com article you got that from, but that is that not doesn't true. come from a creation article. Now, so here's something interesting. We actually have found DNA in dinosaur fossils. Guess what it was from? Bacteria, not dinosaurs. So that's funny because um, actually when you start reading these um, studies, first point I want to make is that if it was if it was so normal to find even blood cells, we're not talking about DNA. If it was so normal to find this type of soft tissue and it just had this rather natural explanation to it, Mary Schweitzer and her team wouldn't have repeated the thing 17 times. Have you seen the video interview with Barbara Walters on that? Mary Schweitzer did not find blood cells. Did you? She explicitly yes. said she's not finding blood cells. She's you are cells. not reading her literature, apparently. I, go, I'm getting this directly from Mary Schweitzer. Go, at what point in history is my point? Go back and watch the video where Barbara Walters interviews her. She interviews her and she interviews Jack Horner. Okay. Look at the expression on their face. They are completely blown away by oh finding God, Barbara Walters was surprised. No, no way. <laughs> no, I'm talking about Mary Schweitzer and Jack Horner. Okay, yeah, they are completely. I, I, I will acknowledge the fact that like Mary Schweitzer was going against the 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 tide there. I mean, she's a great scientist. She stuck with her guns. She knew that her results were right, and she was proven correct in the end. Because people were not expecting these kinds of soft tissues. But what she did was that she treated these dinosaur fossils with chemicals that would erode away all of the minerals. And when the minerals were eroded away, there were still proteins and other soft tissues mm -hmm. that were there. Not red blood cells, to be very clear. There were like remnant structures just in the forms of like the proteins and like the different organic molecules there. But they were not red blood cells by any means or any stretch of the imagination and she has clarified this when creationists have tried to say that she has gone out her paper now has a disclaimer against these creationist claims that she has put out because she's been taken out of context so often in this but when you actually look what she has found the actual chemical structures of these soft tissues it is not at all it would it completely debunks six thousand years because it is not the kinds of structures that we would see after six thousand years it is significantly older than 6,000 years based on the actual biochemistry of what she found. No, you're, you're mixing worldviews to come to a, an erroneous conclusion there. Um, I, I've got a couple quotes here from her directly. When you think about it, the laws of chemistry and biology, where did she get those laws? She's never been a creationist, a young earth creationist. Yes, she has. <laughs> she used to be a young earth creationist before she pursued her degree. Uh, okay. Well, this is her in this particular real field study when she is not a young earth creationist. Well, listen to her she, story. She, she used said, to be a young earth creationist, and then she got an education. And then she actually became a scientist and contributed to the field. And she found these dinosaur soft tissues. And guess what? She's still not a creationist. So listen to the quote. When you think about it, the laws of chemistry and biology and everything else that we know say that it should be gone. It should be degraded completely. And that was in uh, Nova Science Now. 
That was her direct quote. The presence of original molecule components is not predicted for fossils older than a million years. And the discovery of collagen in this well-preserved dinosaur supports the use of actualistic conditions. And this is why I say she missed the mark. She says actualistic conditions here, but she should have started with the taphonomy, not the, the ostrich uh, blood um, um, centrifuge. Actualistic conditions to formulate molecular degradation rates and models. If she started with taphonomy, she wouldn't have had enough to try and assign a half-life of degradation to, rather than relying on theoretical or experimental extrapolations derived from conditions that do not occur in nature. And I totally agree with her because if she had started with taphonomy, similar to how forensic science um, does their work, she couldn't have, uh, she would absolutely not expect the collagen or anything else to last that long. So, um, okay, she so says, question then, um, why is it that when we look at things that are actually accepted by the scientific consensus to be 6,000 years or 4,000 years or whenever you want to say the flood was right. When we look at them, why don't they look like these dinosaur fossils? Why is it that you find all kinds of organic molecules in them that you can't find in dinosaurs that, like when things are actually 6,000 years, they look 6,000 years. When you look at these dinosaur fossils, they look different. They're you're looking, not looking the same. You're looking at two different things typically. And this is a real common evolutionist mistake. You're, you're, you're making a really big uh, logical fallacy here, mainly because you, you've got some kind of factual fallacy in, in the background, I think. But, but it boils down to this. If you find something that has a more modern date assigned to it, it is almost given that it is not flood deposit. It's pretty much a given. It's not flood deposit. It was it was buried and um, fossilized under completely different conditions. So I don't think you see how that's relevant because you believe, right? That why did you bring after it the flood? Wait, wait, wait. You believe that after the flood, it was only a couple hundred years before the pyramids were built, right? It was very quickly after the flood, correct? More than a couple hundred, but yeah, quickly. Okay, so when we look at Egyptians from Old Kingdom Egypt, we do not see the same kind of biochemistry that we see in these dinosaur fossils. Like, that, they are much you more... Do know that we still get do DNA know samples. <laughs> you do know they used chemical embalming on them, right? Yeah, you do know that there were chemical treatments on these dinosaur samples that Mary Schweitzer used to get these results, right? She removed the mineral. That's not the same as what they did to the Egyptians. And let's move on past the Egyptians. Let's look at societies that didn't use mummies. You can you can use any. Look at Vinca Man. Okay, he's he's uh, like purported to be about five thousand years or no, more than five thousand years old, six thousand years old. So this would be right around that time, and yet it's the same as the Egyptians. We we see the same kind of chemicals. Like biochemicals. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, they wouldn't be the same as the Egyptians because they use specific preservation uh, chemicals. And, and you're telling me that the, this other case, they did not. They wouldn't have the same chemical signature. Yeah, well, they do. They definitely don't have the same chemical signature as these dinosaur fossils, which proves again, that they are not the same age. Tell me. No, it does not. That's a major logical fallacy. How was that particular fossil find? How was it? fossilized what process was involved yeah it's not fossilized he's not permanalized notice no human fossils are permanalized because there's not enough time yes there is no there no, most of the human fossils you're finding that aren't permineralized if indeed that is the case not i'm not disputing that they're all still bone 
if they're still original bone, the majority of them, for instance, like the Neanderthals, are buried in caves. And they're buried in the dirt in a dry environment. Mm -hmm. So, no, you're not going to get a ton of mineralization in a dry environment. You get permineralization from water transport. Okay. Well, we can look at all kinds of different human remains, and none of them are permineralized. But all of the dinosaur ones are. You don't find any dinosaurs that still have, like, not permineralized, right? That like, is like, completely not true. It is. No, you can. As a matter of fact, there's a place in Canada where hadrosaur bones were found on top of the ground unpermineralized they and they were ignored for a very long time because the locals thought they were just cow bones that had died you know when, whenever in the past and they, and they were just, still mineralized no they weren't yes they and, were and so this brings this brings up one other really interesting point about the whole mary schweitzer jack horner thing um mary had gone to jack and said look this is what i found and 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 she she said something to the effect of it stinks out there and i think she was referring to hell creek montana and you know what jack horner said yet said to her he said, yeah, it's it's well known. Um, all of those um, dig sites like that stink. Why do they stink? Um, it's because there is soft tissue in those bones and those soft tissue has has been found by now, as you well know. No, um, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Go smell a dinosaur bone. It's not going to smell. Um, that's not what gentlemen, gentlemen, excellent discussion we you know what let's wrap it up here we are two hours and 45 minutes into this we got through uh each point though i wasn't sure at first when we had basically an entire debate on earth's magnetic field you both did great great endurance and so i'm happy to say we got through all all five points so okay we're gonna move into if you'd like to, gentlemen, three minutes just to wrap up your thoughts and points, as you both might feel there's a few things hanging. And so take the three minutes, use them however you'd like to, and then we are going to get into about 25 minutes worth of, of audience questions. So uh, T-Rock, go ahead, take three minutes to wrap up your thoughts and points. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I won't spend a whole lot of time going back over any of the technical information just because we, we've been pretty exhaustive in our conversation. Um, you can go down a lot of rabbit trails like that. So I'll, I'll just summarize real quickly. Um, when you do modern scientific endeavors that affect real time things, and you apply those same methods to investigating the world in the past, you come up with some bizarre conundrums that should not exist if deep time were true, is, is the gist of this entire presentation. Use real-time science that you would use, like I was describing, forensics, as it's used in criminal investigation, and use those methods in your um, investigation of things like dinosaur soft tissue. And dinosaur soft tissue, honestly, is not the oldest soft tissue by a long stretch. Um, we don't have any time to go back into that, but it's not. Um, but anyway, use those methods uh, that you use in modern scientific techniques that have nothing to do with origins and apply them to the past. And you come up with some bizarre conundrums. We see that in, in the physics. Um, and, and so the, the solutions always seem to be some imaginary conditions that, that existed in the past. Um, that make modern methods invalid in that particular uh, setting. So um, I'll just recap real quick. Earth's magnetism puts about a 10,000 year limit on the age of the Earth because the reversals that do cause the spikes that were described 
actually accelerate the overall energy um, decline in the field. So 10,000 years uh, basically puts a cap because the half-life is so short in the 200 years worth of data that we have. Erosional rates um, at, at very modest modern day average rates, when you extrapolate that into the past, you find out that uh, you really shouldn't have uh, um, continents anymore. Uh, so when you combine that with lunar recession and you find out that in time over over time going backwards the, the the moon comes closer and closer to the earth the gravitational influence is increased by um uh, the inverse square law but the kinetic energy of the tidal wave is also increased by at least that much actually more um you find out that erosion rates the further you go back in time the bigger the problem they are so today's rates are actually not sufficient to describe what happened in the past but yet they still limit the age of the earth to about 10,000 years. Okay, or 10 million, sorry, at, at an absolute max. Radiometric decay, we talked about carbon-14. Um, super short half-life, you have to imagine um, this internal source that was talked about because they normally uh, would default to an idea of neutron bombardment from an external radiation source like uranium or something like that. But the, the problem is, is that that rate of, of um, rebuilding carbon-14 is about 13,000 times too slow if it's absolutely perfectly accurate every time a, a neutron flies into a nitrogen atom. Okay. Um, dinosaur soft tissue also has the same carbon-14 in it. So if carbon, if, if diamonds can be um, contaminated in any way, so much more so for any living or once living uh, tissue, because it is all porous and absorbs water and external uh, elements from the environment rather easily where carbon-14 does not. And so carbon-14 limits the age of the earth to um, no more than 50 to 100,000 years. Uh, dinosaur soft tissue. Um, I, I said 20,000 earlier. I, I, I still stick by that because when you do a proper forensics investigation, you find out that they were highly degraded and disarticulated before their time of burial, which means there is a tiny minuscule fraction of soft tissue or anything else left, carbon-14 included, um, left to deal with to explain. That's what you're actually trying to explain how much should have been left at the time of death, not how much theoretical the, the, the once living animal had, but how much was left after it was, at the time it was buried. And so that limits very well below the standard rates given for collagen duration, other types of um, uh, protein duration, well below those numbers that are typically in the 600,000 to 1 million year range. And that's how I get it down to more realistically less than 20,000 years. So with that, I yield my time. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank right. you very much there, uh, T-Rock. Grayson, would you like a, a few minutes to, to wrap anything up as well? Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, went pretty well as certain terms of uh, showing the faulty reasoning, um, the the mistakes in in T Rock's reasoning about each of these five points, and um, explaining why, for example, Earth's magnetic field has variations in strength over time. So there's no limiting time there. Um, showing that. Erosion rates are compensated by plate tectonics, 
Um, I've seen people in the chat asking about what the soil accumulation on the ocean floor that's done away with by subduction. So plate tectonics accounts for all of these erosion, erosion processes. It counterbalances them. And the rates of erosion have varied throughout geological time as well. And um, the moon being closer would cause uh, more tidal activity, but it was closer way before uh, any life was on Earth. So that wasn't a problem for life. I mean, this is like microbial life, which is not really impacted by that kind of thing. And then the increased erosion is, is, again, counterbalanced by plate tectonics. The amount of new material being generated and the amount of material being destroyed by erosion has varied throughout time, but they roughly counterbalance each other out. Um, although I think now we're at a, a higher erosion rate than is typical in the past. And then uh, carbon-14, obviously, I, I've I went through a number of different processes like recrystallization or bacterial ingrowth or just being close to radioactive materials. That is going to generate new carbon-14 in these samples. It is not the original carbon-14 that he's talking about, so that addresses that. And then with the dinosaur soft tissues, that was really fun because obviously the biochemistry in bones in 6,000 years is not the same as the biochemistry we find in these dinosaur soft tissues. They are very chemically distinct, thus proving that the dinosaur bones are not 6,000 years. It is literally proof against the creation model, these dinosaur soft tissues. When you actually analyze them from a biochemical perspective about what this these soft tissues actually look like, we can see that they don't look anything like 6,000 year, year old soft tissues should look like. So I think I've done an adequate job of debunking each of his points, showing where the faulty reasoning, reasoning is and providing a scientifically accurate uh, explanation for these supposed problems that T-Rock has brought up for an old earth. So old earth wins, yuck loses tonight in my opinion uh we can go on to answer some questions all right i appreciate the energy and passion coming out of t-rock and grayson thank you for the epic exchange three hours of free-flowing discussion comprehensive back and forth on five major points and so grayson and t-rock again thank you so much and let's get into some questions and so I'll put a timer on the questions. And once it goes off, we'll wrap it up. Okay, here we go. Um, we'll just start at the... We'll, we'll start from the top. First question comes in from Creationist Crybaby. And uh, Crybaby here is coming at you, T-Rock. CC's asking... Why did measurements of magnetic field direction and intensity show little change between 1590 and 1840? Instead, the variation in the magnetic field is recent. Go ahead. Okay, I'm gonna I gotta think about this for a second. Why did the measure Why did the measurements of magnetic field direction and intensity show little change between 1590 and 1840? Uh, so you've got about a 250-year period, a little change, variation in the, in the, instead the variation in the magnetic field is recent. Um, <clears throat> there are, so this, this is kind of what I was trying to describe earlier. 
Um, I think Grayson was conflating what I was describing with some kind of, of uniformitarian model, um, ironically enough, and that's not what I was doing at all. Um, in order to change a magnetic field, you need mechanical motion. The mechanical motion can be provided by thermal currents. In other words, you've got um, uh, hot currents cause an upward flow, um, cold currents cause a downward flow. So you can induce a change in the field by that type of motion. It will be slower most of the time. Most of the time it will be slower. It can be faster if you add some more kinetic energy to it. Um, so if you think about how you induce a, um, a magnetic field into a, a nail, for example, as a common high school or a, actually a middle school experiment, hook a battery up, take some wires, wrap it around a nail, you induce the current into the, into the deal. So if you want to reverse a magnetic field uh, that's being induced, all you have to do is reverse the direction of, of flow or the, the mechanical uh, direction. So <clears throat> to answer your question, it, it just depends on what the, uh, the specific mechanical um, energy, the, the kinetic energy properties were that induced that field. Thank you, T-Rock. Grayson, the floor is yours if you'd like to add anything. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think T-Rock's answer just totally debunks the whole idea that the Earth's field has half-lives. Appreciate it, Grayson. T-Rock, you can have the quick final word since the question was for you. Um, the fact that you can cause these, these spikes to happen erratically does not change the fact that the natural decay is still determined by a basic field equation. We're not trying to equate it. There is a half-life decay. And every time you get a spike um, in the field intensity, you're going to accelerate the field energy. Two different things. Does not negate the fact that it has a half-life. It's just that what you're doing is effectively um, accelerating the rate of decay by, in, by decreasing the half-life. And it's an erratic change. I will agree. There was never any insinuation that you just plot the thing as a smooth um, exponential decay curve and walk away and call it a day. That's not anything like what I said. Um, everything I said. Can you name is, any other half-life model that has erratic behavior like that? Because every model that I'm aware of, like every system that has half-life model behavior is that kind of smooth graph. It doesn't have that kind of erratic pattern if it really follows a half-life decay. Um, uh, yeah, pretty much every system is going to because the only way you can provide that type of smooth curve is to make some giant assumptions that you can't prove. So what other type of system has an erratic half-life decay, so to speak? Any radiometric dating is going to be that way. Carbon-14 is actually that way. You can't, that's why there's a calibration. There's a deal called IntCal. IntCal-13 is the most, or IntCal-20 maybe, maybe the most recent version of this. But that's why you have to calibrate those. And so when you look at things like uh, various forms of other more ancient Earth uh, radiometric methods, they're calibrated against one specific radioisotope. And so what you're doing is making all these assumptions to give you the impression that you have the smooth curve when in fact you can't because you can't even account for what the actual starting conditions were. So by definition, those half-life patterns cannot be extrapolated that way either. Yeah, well, 
electromagnetic circuits like the formula you're using is smooth half-life decay. There, it's not erratic with ups and downs like that. Neither is radiometric decay. You're never just going to get a random spike so in radiometric that's a, decay. That's an equivocation fallacy because the the modern electronics um, adaptation of that method is a highly controlled environment. The history of the Earth is not. Okay. Right, quite so then you can't use those equations for the Earth's magnetic field. Got it. Yes. Yes, you can. You use those equations and implement the spikes where you see them and get the net effect at the end of it. It's the combination of the two. It's not one negates the other. Yeah, I don't think you've been doing that. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, an entertaining question number one. And okay, so we've got question number two comes in from see which one we could do i guess we'll go redefine living now we've got a question for grayson and so redefine living is asking ignoring the erosion rates of the continent how do you explain the lack of erosion accumulation on the ocean floor yeah i already explained this uh, subduction okay thank you grayson t-rock anything you'd like to add um, yes, subduction doesn't really work for that. And I explained that earlier, um, per the modern annual, how many billions of tons of, of, um, erosional remnants end up in the seafloor, extrapolating that back in time, you don't have enough seafloor sediments, period. Now, Grayson's trying to put them underneath the continent or down back into the crust or something. I'm not sure. Um, but um, either way, they don't solve either of the problems, uh, because if they were all going down into the core, that would accelerate the cooling of the core. Well, subduction does happen. It's recorded. We know that subduction literally destroys all of these elements in the, at the bottom of the ocean. All oceanic crust is eventually doomed to be subducted. So it's, the it's very well question. known in established science. Subduction. <laughs> destroys oceanic crust and it happens all the time it's happening right now it in, it's the volume in question not the fact that nobody's arguing the fact that subduction happens it's the yeah, volume the, the of vast majority of all there. oceanic crust that has ever existed has been subducted and destroyed and to be more specific the erosion rate just like the carbon 14 production versus uh, decay rate the the subduction rate is way way slower than the modern erosion rates yeah, modern being a good disclaimer there. Okay, we'll give Grayson the last word as his question. So now we've got a question for T-Rock. And looking at the questions, you guys were so comprehensive that 90% of these questions have to do with topics you've already discussed. So apologies ahead of time, but that's the nature of the Q&A period. So Mark Reed has a question for T-Rock. Why would you reference Mary Schweitzer when she has specifically written a disclaimer for her paper telling young earth creations not to use her paper for evidence of a young earth because it's not. Go ahead. Why would I reference Mary Schweitzer? Well, contrary to something Mark Reed actually said just a few days ago, I believe when he and Grayson were, were doing the, um, the ERV discussion, Mark made an interesting comment, uh, which, which I'll be honest with you, I found rather bizarre. But what he said was that, you can't accept a science paper's data in so many words. You can't accept the data in the paper if you don't accept the conclusions that the scientist who did the work 
made. And so that's generally the sentiment that he's doing here. And what I'm saying is that is it. it sorry, it's a it's a bunch of baloney because um, number one, it's the data that's supposed to tell the story. If you have an honest rendering of of what data is, data doesn't speak. It has to be interpreted. Um, what was her disclaimer? If, if her disclaimer was published in in a scientific journal, it should have been backed by all of the data. So it's kind of a circular argument there. In normal logic, the data is what I want to see, not your interpretation of it. The fact that um, we have persistent soft tissue in dinosaur bones is the evidence that alludes to the dinosaur's soft tissue and the, and the existence of the dinosaurs not being 65 million years old. Her interpretation, she can have all the disclaimers she wants. The open literature is there for the benefit of the public, not who one individual picks and chooses should be able to, to use it. Thank you. Go ahead, Grayson. Yeah, just clearly, I mean, Mary Schweitzer had to put out that disclaimer because her results were being misconstrued by creationists. I mean, they, they were people were saying that they were finding blood cells, they were finding fresh bones. The amount of headlines in, in the creationist articles that were coming out around her work were just getting insane. And she was reading things that were completely false about her own work. So she put out the disclaimer to say, hey, stop misconstruing. These are the results. These are the data that I'm saying. Okay. She would have no problem if people were actually like sourcing her data accurately. She doesn't care if her data is being sourced accurately. She's only going to care if her her work is being misconstrued. So that's why she put out the disclaimer. So that is a an obvious fail in logic because some creationist might have miscited her work might have misquoted her, might have made all kinds of conclusions that weren't warranted. That is not a reason to say no YEC people can use my information anymore. That is complete baloney because she was actually attacked most viciously by the evolutionary crowd. They did not like her methods. And so should we also dismiss every one of them as well? Well, she was proven right in the end. Like her, her results were correct. So if you accurately represent her results, she's not going to take any issue with you. So, T. Rock, um, we'll have the last word. That's uh, your question. Then we'll move on. Okay, last word. Telling YEC not to use her paper. There are YC YEC people who accurately represent her work, but but by this comment on the screen here. Apparently, it was a broad strokes statement that says, even if you accurately represent it, you're still not allowed to use it. Maybe you should have read the disclaimer then. Maybe you should have read the disclaimer since it was your argument. All right, guys. <laughs> the battle over the last word. Okay, we're moving on. George Bond now. Question for Grayson. Appreciate the super chat there, George. And he says, if isostatic compensating is correct, then why do we still find fossils? Go ahead, Grayson. Um, yeah, I'm going to actually let T-Rock have the first word on this because honestly, like this seems like two completely separate points. I, I really don't get what he's trying to connect them. So maybe if T-Rock can maybe rephrase the, the problem that George Bond is trying to point out, 
because I really don't see what one has to do with the other. Are you, are you just trying to make sure you get the last word? <laughs> no, no, you can have the last word if you want. Okay. I, I don't care. I just I don't, really I'll don't take understand it. what he's trying to say. I'll take it. But basically what he's saying is one of the points I was trying to bring out earlier. I wanted to anyway. And, and I, we, we just had such a huge volume of material to go through. But this, this is exactly – thank you, George, for the question. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, what he's basically saying is if isostatic compensation is a thing, then basically the continent should be eroded completely to basement granite and then some. And everything that came up after that would have had to have been some type of foundational basement rock and there would be no more organic soil left because erosion rates are too fast. Right. Well, like I said, not all of the material gets eroded. About 7% of the current continental crust is older than 2.5 billion years. It's not like 100% of everything uh, gets eroded. So like you do lose a lot of fossils due to erosion and due to subduction. You do lose fossils. We've lost a lot of fossils that had formed. But I mean, ultimately, like, I really don't see why isostatic compensation, like, would affect your fossils in any way. Like, the, the, the continents are going to continue to rise up as they, they lose, like, material from erosion. That doesn't affect the, the presence of fossils. Um, it absolutely does, because one of the points that, that George was probably trying to make here is that not only do we have fossils, we have extremely deep layers above sea level with fossils in them. And so they, there's nothing about that that makes sense. Um, and to put a finer point on it, when you go out west, so the western side of the U.S. is, is typically at a much higher elevation than the eastern side, which I find hugely ironic because you can actually walk through the western deserts and find dinosaur era bones on top of the ground 65 million plus years old at the highest plains but gravity goes downhill so everything that eroded off of there the erosion should have been much higher than it is at the lower eastern side of the country and yet you can find a lot of younger fossils down there so the whole point here is that the erosion rates today they would have completely, we wouldn't have continents at all, period. It would all be underwater. No, you're oversimplifying the causes for erosion rates. They're multifactorial. What fact, like what influences the rate of erosion? For example, Australia has some of the oldest continental crust in the entire world. The erosion rate are very slow in, in those areas. Like you, you have differential erosion rates based on the environment. Okay, okay. so... Well, I'll respond really quick, really okay, short. So you respond, T-Rock, then Grayson, you'll get the last word. Go ahead. I don't need the last Grayson, word. Grayson, Grayson passed it to me, but I'll just all I want to say is that anytime you invoke an age, an ancient age in the deep time scenario, you're invoking circular reason because that's the very thing we're debating. Okay, here we go. Next question comes in from Mitchell. If neodymium magnets lose a fraction of force every 100 years, Taking that force back millions of years ago, when would that force decay? I'm assuming it's for you, Grayson. Yeah, we... yeah. Mitchell's one of my biggest fans. Um, basically, he what he's referring to is ferromagnetism. It's like a permanent magnet. And what we're talking about with the Earth's magnetic field is... Sorry, say, it, say that again. Did you say ferromagnetism? Yes. He's talking about okay. neodymium magnets, which are permanent right. magnets, which would Go be ahead. ferromagnetic. So he's referring to ferromagnetism, 
that is not the kind of magnetism that is affecting the Earth's magnetic field. That is produced by magnetic induction because, like we said, the temperatures are too high. If you had a neodymium magnet in the center of the Earth, guess what? It wouldn't be magnetic anymore. It would be too hot. It would no longer be magnetic. The magnetic moments of its atoms would no longer be aligned and it would no longer have a magnetic field. So, yes, all permanent magnets undergo like a magnetic decay over time. But it's a, not the same process that it would apply to the core of the Earth because it's magnetic induction. It's not a permanent magnet. Go ahead, T-Rock, if there's anything you'd like to add. Um, I mean, there's not a whole lot to disagree with there. He's, he's, every type of magnet has its own decay rate. So taking that force back millions of years, the only way you could, you could calculate that hypothetically um, and, and come up with some number if you wanted to. But the problem there, of course, is that neodymium magnets are man-made. They're not in the, in the Earth's crust at all. Um, neodymium itself is called a rare earth magnet, interesting, or a rare earth um, element. Interestingly, it's not actually all that rare. It's called rare because it's very lightly distributed uh, across the entire, by and large, the entire surface of the earth. And therefore, it's very difficult to mine for. Um, its actual abundance is, is relatively high. But point is, is that neodymium magnets, um, they're man-made. So you can produce a different type of decay rate for them than anything found in nature. Uh, we, me and T-Rock actually agree. Well done, Very, It took three hours and 14 minutes, but we finally <laughs> found something we agree on. And that means you're still friends. So good job. And next question comes in from Donato. Thank you very much for the super chat. And okay, we'll, re we'll go through it. If sedimentary layers can be used for dating, where did this material come from, from space? I'm sure you're familiar with this question, Grayson. So why don't we start with you? Go ahead. Yeah, so they come from sediment, obviously. Sediment deposited by water, by wind, like sediment erodes from one place, moves over to another place, and forms sedimentary layers through known geological processes. They're not coming from space. That is silly and ridiculous. And sedimentary layers are not typically used. I, well, I guess they just say dating, but they're not used for radiometric dating typically. You need like igneous layers or or you know, fossils or things like that. Thank you, Grayson. Go ahead, T-Rock. So <laughs> I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not totally thrilled about the, the wording, but I understand um, if sedimentary layers can be used for dating, where did this material come from? Okay, so, so the dating that is inferred in sedimentary layers, no, there is no radiometric method applied to them typically. Um, instead, what, what they would do is look at volcanic layers below them uh, volcanic layers above them and try and extrapolate some time in between those is what they would do. But to the point of this, using sedimentary layers for dating, they actually are. It's called varv dating. Um, so they can be used in some circumstances. They just don't go back to the tune of, of, of tens of millions of years anyway. Um, so, it, and, and to be more specific, it's not about dating the material it's about trying to determine what the rate of deposition was and extrapolate it over time. It's usually problematic either way. It doesn't matter because when you go actually look at 
these sedimentary layers, you can distinctly see the laminations in the flow that only comes from laminar flow. Laminar flow implies one half mv squared kinetic energy is pushing this stuff out in a horizontal fashion. And so you can get really deep layers. And if you count the little bands in them and think you're measuring deposition rate, you're not because the whole thing is done simultaneously. That's easily demonstrable in modern flume experiments. So, yeah. yeah so how we would date something like that is look at what igneous layers occur at top of on top of it and what igneous layers occur below those those banded layers and then that gives us a nice like you can radiocarbon date or radiometrically date igneous layers so that gives us a good age range for when those big banded layers were put down so if it's only you know 15 years difference oh wow those layers were deposited very quickly if it's 50,000 or 20 million years difference then the deposition rate was within that time frame. So we can absolutely use methods to date sedimentary layers by just looking at the igneous layers above and below them. Okay, thank you, Grayson. Uh, your question, you can have the last word. Now we got one for T-Rox. We've had a healthy mix. Question for Grayson, qu question for T-Rock. Mark Reed again, appreciate it. Uh, Mark Reed, question for T-Rock, back to the soft tissue, looks like. So he's asking, why do you think you know more about the soft dinosaur tissue study than the person who performed the study? Um, I didn't think I know more about the study. What I said was there is a common sense sequence of events that happens, and you have to take that into consideration. It doesn't matter if you have a PhD and you're staring at molecules under a microscope and you know all the super technical information, if you ignore the very fundamental principles of the sequence of events and only focus on the chemistry to draw your conclusions, I don't have to know all of those details to know that you missed the actual forensic study that had to happen first before you can jump to any conclusions at the end with the chemistry. Sounds like Dunning-Kruger to me. Sounds like you should not be a PhD scientist. Oh, Grayson and T-Rock, you guys just had a nice uh, agreement earlier. And now we got fighting words again. So keep it well, in mind. Well, just like Earth's magnetic field strength, it goes up and it goes down. <laughs> you guys got an up and down relationship. Okay, moving on to the next question. We're coming at that 25-minute mark soon. And so that was a question for... Uh, T-Rock. And so let's see what we got here for Grayson. Um, let's see. Redefine living now. Coming at you there, Grayson. So RL, ignoring the missing bioturbation between the geologic layering. So I think this is different from earlier. Why are we missing evidence of erosion between the layers? Um... Yeah, I'm also going to need T-Rock to translate this question for me as well. So if you go look at what he's talking, what he's describing in part is what would be termed in, in geology as the unconformities. And so there's what's called the great unconformity, which is in the Grand Canyon, but you can have smaller unconformities. And unconformity basically means that it does not look like there was a natural transition through normal geological processes from this layer to the one above it is, is essentially what it means. 
And so what the question here, thank you, Redefine Living, very good question. If you ignore all the, the, the missing bioturbation and only look at the layers, you, you don't see any erosion in there. And, and what the geologists do is uh, basically call that missing time. There's some time missing that they can't account for between this sudden transition from this to that, where there are no geological processes to estimate the time. Does that help you clarify okay. the question? I mean, that just sounds like something that I'd agree with because I, you know, I, I don't really understand what he's asking then. Why are we missing evidence of erosion between the layers? Because it's eroded away. Like what because is, you can't just, the reason he's asking the question is because you can't just throw this imaginary time in between the layers and ignore the fact that geological processes had to have been happening during that time. Okay, then I won't do that. Geological processes were happening, okay? But that, is I, where, that is where the age determinations come from, largely. Uh, I mean, I personally, I, I think radiometric dating is, is a very good determiner of age. I mean, like, uh, you know... Zircon crystals are the oldest things that we can radiometrically date. It is physically impossible to form a zircon crystal with any amount of daughter element. You, you can't, like, the, the crystals do not form if they contain any amount, like significant amounts of lead. So we know that there were no daughter elements present in the formation of zircon crystals. Zircon crystals are, you know, up to like 4 billion plus years old. And then we can just look at the asteroids in space, radiocarbon date them. There's the age of the earth right there. So I'm, I don't really need to look at these little layers. We're just radiocarbon date or radiometric date. All right, guys, we're moving on to the last question of the night. Again, thank you to the both of you for all of your time for this excellent exchange. So Sandy C, question for T-Rock. What is the explanation for cold slabs deep in the Earth's mantle? So, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. It's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, it's one that I think is extremely difficult for uh, secular science to try and answer using deep time as their backdrop. The explanation is basically that you had continental movement and the, the, uh, the two meters per second that I described during the conversation, you've got these very massive continental bodies moving at, at the pace of a, a medium to brisk walk. And they come in and when they collide, it shoves it down real quick. Um, to the point that it's almost vertical um, to the surface of the earth. So the problem, of course, is um, at that two meter per second rate, you can get a lot of kinetic energy into it, um, even with relatively slow velocities due to the, the extreme mass involved. And when they dive quick like that, it's a thermodynamics problem because over millions and millions of years, um, the temperature of those sub, those deep subducted slabs should have normalized, but they're not. They're very cold. Now, somebody wants to appeal to some kind of bizarre imaginary thermal transfer between the, the, uh, the molten part of the core and those plates. If there were any validity to that at all, we could develop coffee cups that would keep Donnie's coffee warm for millions of years and we wouldn't have to worry about it. So anyways, that's the explanation. It has to dive quick. They're still cold enough that they haven't um, normalized their temperatures yet. And it's specifically from, again, standard physics equation. Don't tell me I got this from creation literature. One half MV squared tells you what the kinetic energy is that forces the dive in, in a short amount of time. 
Did I just hear coffee <laughs> for millions of years? Sounds good to me. Okay, T-Rock, thank you. Grayson, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to read more about cold slabs if I was going to weigh in on this with any kind of authority. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just have to read more up on it. I don't really know all the dynamics for these cold slabs that Sandy is pointing out. So I'll, I'll definitely read up on it, though. All right, T-Rock and Grayson, that concludes the debate for tonight. This definitely was an exciting one, a much-anticipated one. A lot of people have wanted to see you two go at it. And we got a very comprehensive one, three and a half hours. So T-Rock, Grayson, thanks for your time. Let's get some final words, final thoughts. If you'd like to plug your channel one final time for the chat, feel free to do so. We still got 120 people here. Uh, Grayson, let's start with you. Always a pleasure. Final words. All right. Well, um, that was pretty fun. I was surprised. I I didn't know how much we would be able to get into each of the five points. I even thought that we might have some time left over at the end. So I was way wrong about that. Uh, yeah, I was happy with how the conversation went. Um, I thought it was a good back and forth. And I thought I was able to adequately debunk T-Rock's points, even if you know he and people in the chat might disagree. I thought... Everything went well. Uh, it was pretty good. So check out my channel if you like this kind of content. I plan on continuing to do deb de debates like this because I find them very fun. And I, I would like to, to spread out too and do debates on topics more than just like young earth creationism. Like to maybe do a flat earth debate if there's any flat earthers out there, you know, hit me up. I'd like to do debates on like race realism or... Um, you know, I'm open to debating politics, too. So I'm really open to any kind of debates. I've got a debate coming up. Donnie, I don't know if the date, I think the date's changed, but I've got a debate coming up with Nephilim Free on this channel. So stay tuned for that. And then I've got a debate coming up on modern day debates on Big Bang cosmology. So a lot of things, exciting things coming up in down the pipeline. And I will be continuing to put out videos on my channel as well. So go ahead and check it out down in the description as based theory, as in the opposite of cringe theory, like creationism. All right, Grayson, appreciate it. Thank you. And um, yeah, you know, I've had some emails from people who hold to the flat earth who wanted to debate in over 260 debates. We haven't hosted one on that yet. I'm still torn on whether I want to or not, but maybe I'll put out a poll one of these days and we'll get uh, we'll get the opinions of, of many on that and, and we'll go from there, basically. Okay, T-Rock, thank you as well. Thanks for your time. Uh, final words, final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun too myself. I'm really, really unfortunate that I couldn't share my screen. I, I, it's never been an issue in the past. I don't know why it is today. So my apologies to the audience. My apologies to Donnie and to Grayson. I, I just don't know what was driving that. But um, <clears throat> technical problems happen. It's it's all right. Uh, to Grayson, I would like to say thank you for participating in the discussion. Absolutely no hard feelings. Um, <clears throat> it is a passionate topic for a lot of people. I'm not different than that. I, I honestly do try not to, um, you know, be insulting or, or anything like that. I know I said some, some kind of harsh things probably but um <clears throat> anyway no hard feelings i had well, a lot Grayson of fun. did just call what you believe cringe so if you want to feel free to <laughs> feel free to give the heat back to him a little bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no i'll be honest with you Grayson. it's just not my style to you know pick and jab at people a whole lot so uh, I, 
if you do it, I, I'm not offended by it. Um, I, I'm not. Yeah, there you go. Totally wasn't offended. Um, so, yeah, no, and thank you to the audience. Uh, I guess one more word to, to Grayson. We, we need to do this again in the future, maybe around two on some of these same subjects. Uh, another fun one that I think would be, um, did man and dinosaur coexist? <clears throat> or how about this? Here's a new one. When did dinosaurs actually go extinct? Anyway, um, I think there's a, there's plenty of material out there. We could do it again. It was a lot of fun um, back and forth with, with Grayson. To me, I thought it was fairly smooth overall. Not a whole lot of, you know, trying to stomp the other one down by over-talking him or anything like that. So I'm very, very glad for that. Thank you to the audience. Um, the audience is always awesome. Thank you for the questions. They they really bring out the um, you know some of the some of the fine details of the debate sometimes. And uh, and a big thank you, of course, to Donnie and his team for putting all this together. We wouldn't be able to do it without your platform. So thank you very much. And I definitely look forward to the the next one that we get set up. Amen. Well said. I'd like to get some more dinosaurs and man, did they coexist debates in there? So for anybody interested, Grayson and T-Rock, anyone in the audience will definitely. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead, Grayson. Yeah, I just want to say I am open to that debate. And also I know that T-Rock has an entire Excel document with like 80 different of these evidences for the, the <laughs> debunking the old earth or whatever. So tonight we just went through five of them because originally I said, pick any of the 80 that you want and we can just go through them. And we would have been here for like 72 hours. <laughs> so I, I, I'm definitely open to doing another five from that Excel sheet or whatever. I mean, I thought this was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no. So we've got 75 more to go and therefore uh, at least another 50 <laughs> rounds to go. So that sounds good. We had a great audience. A lot of people enjoyed this. I enjoyed it. This was a ton of fun. I really enjoyed the free flowing nature of it and the focus on just uh, five points. So gentlemen, great job to the audience. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate as always, all of the questions and uh, we'll see you on Monday with Mark Reed and Paul Price. <laughs>